Part three, chapter thirty one of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. Before Levin got halfway downstairs, he heard in the vestibule the sound of a familiar cough, but the sound was covered by the noise of his own footsteps, and he hoped that he was mistaken. Then he saw the tall, bony figure which he knew so well, but even now, when there seemed to be no possibility of deception, he still hoped that he was mistaken, and that this tall man, who was divesting himself of his shuba and coughing, was not his brother Nikolai. Levin loved his brother, but it was always extremely disagreeable to live with him, now especially when Levin was under the influence of the thoughts and suggestions awakened by Agafya Mikhailovna, and was in a dull and melancholy humor, the presence of his brother was indeed an affliction. Instead of a gay, healthy visitor, some stranger, who, he hoped, would drive away his perplexities, he was obliged to receive his brother, who knew him through and through, who could read his most secret thoughts, and who would oblige him to share them with him, and this he did not like to do. Angry with himself for his unworthy sentiments, Levin ran down into the vestibule, and, as soon as he saw his brother close at hand, the feeling of personal discomfort instantly disappeared, and was succeeded by a feeling of pity. Terrible as his brother Nikolai had been when he saw him before, by reason of his emaciation and illness, he was now still more emaciated, still more feeble. He was like a skeleton covered with skin. He was standing in the vestibule, stretching out his long, thin neck, and unwinding a scarf from it and he smiled with a strange, melancholy smile. When Levin saw his brother's humble and pitiful smile, he felt a choking sensation. "'Well, I have come to you,' said Nikolai, in a thick voice, and not for a second taking his eyes from his brother's face. "'I have been wanting to come for a long time. Yes, I have. But I have been so ill. Now I am very much better,' he added, rubbing his beard with his great bony hand." Yes, yes, replied Levin, and it was still more terrible to him when, as he touched his brother's shriveled cheeks with his lips, he felt his fever flush, and saw the gleam of his great, strangely brilliant eyes. Some time before this, Constantine Levin had written his brother that, having disposed of the small portion of their common inheritance, consisting of personal property, a sum of two thousand roubles was due as his share. Nikolai said that he had come to get this money, and especially to see the old nest, to put his foot on the natal soil, so as to get renewed strength, like the heroes of ancient times. Notwithstanding his tall, stooping form, notwithstanding his frightful emaciation, his movements were, as they had always been, quick and impetuous. Levin took him to his room. Nikolai changed his dress, and took great pains with his toilet which in former times he neglected. He brushed his thin-shaven hair, and went upstairs smiling. He was in the gayest and happiest humor, just as Constantine had seen him when he was a child. He even spoke of Sergey Ivanovitch without bitterness. When he saw Agafya Mikhailovna, he jested with her, and questioned her about the old servants. The news of the death of Parfen Desinuich made a deep impression on him. A look of fear crossed his face but he instantly recovered himself. "'He was very old, was he not?' he asked. 
and he quickly changed the conversation. Yes, I'm going to stay a month or two with you, and then go back to Moscow. You see, Mayakov has promised me a place, and I shall enter the service. Now I have turned over a new leaf entirely, he added. You see, I have sent away that woman. Marya Nikolaevna? How? What for? Ah, she was a wretched woman. She caused a heap of tribulations. But he did not tell what the tribulations were. He could not confess that he had sent Marya Nikolaevna away because she made his tea too weak, still less because she insisted on treating him as an invalid. Then, besides, I want to begin an entirely new kind of life. Of course, I, like everybody else, have committed follies, but the present, I mean the last one, I don't regret it, provided only I get better, and better, thank the Lord, I feel it already. Levin listened, and tried, but tried in vain, to find something to say. Apparently Nikolai had somewhat the same feeling. He began to ask him about his affairs, and Constantine was glad to speak about himself because he could speak without any pretense. He frankly related his plans and his experiments. Nikolai listened, but did not show the least interest. These two men were so related to each other, and there was such a bond between them, that the slightest motion, the sound of their voices, spoke more clearly than all the words that they could say to each other. At this moment both were thinking the same thought, Nikolai's illness and approaching death, dwarfing everything else into insignificance. Neither of them dared make the least allusion to it, and therefore all that either of them said failed to express what really occupied their minds, and was therefore false. Never before had Levin been so glad for an evening to end, for bedtime to come. Never, even when obliged to pay casual or official visits, had he felt so false and unnatural as that evening. And the consciousness of this unnaturalness, and his regret, made him more unnatural still. His heart was breaking to see his beloved dying brother, but he was obliged to dissemble, and to talk about various things as if his brother were going to live. As at this time the house was damp, and only his own room was warm, Levin offered to share it, with a partition between them, with his brother. Nikolai went to bed, and slept the uneasy sleep of an invalid, turning restlessly from side to side, and constantly coughing. Sometimes, when he could not raise the phlegm, he would cry out, Ah, oh, moi Sometimes, when the dampness choked him, he would grow angry and cry out, Oh, the devil! Levin could not sleep as he listened to him. His thoughts were varied, but they always returned to one theme, death. Death, the inevitable end of all, for the first time appeared to him with irresistible force. And death was here, with this beloved brother, who groaned in his sleep, and who called now upon God, now upon the devil. It was with him, also, this he felt, if not to-day, then to-morrow, if not to-morrow, then in thirty years, was it not all the same? And what this inevitable death was, not only did he not know, not only had he never before thought about it, but he had not wished, had not dared, to think about it. Here I am working, wanting to accomplish something, but I forget that all must come to an end. Death. He was lying in bed in the darkness, curled up, holding his knees, scarcely able to breathe, so great was the tension of his mind. 
the more he thought, the more clearly he saw that from his conception of life he had omitted nothing except this one little factor, death, which would come and end all, and that there was no help against it, not the least. Yes, this is terrible, but it is so. Yes, but I am still alive. Now, what can be done about it? What can be done? he asked in despair. He lighted a candle, and softly arose, and went to the mirror, and began to look at his face and his hair. Yes, on the temples a few gray hairs were to be seen. He opened his mouth. His back teeth showed signs of decay. He doubled up his muscular arms. Yes, there's much strength, but this poor Nikolenka, who is breathing so painfully with the little that is left of his lungs, also had at one time a healthy body. And suddenly he remembered how when they were children and were put to bed, they would wait until Fyodor Bagdanuitch got out of the door, and then begin a pillow fight, and laugh, and laugh so unrestrainedly that not even the fear of Fyodor Bagdanuitch could quench this exuberant and intoxicating sense of the gaiety of life. But now, there he lies in bed with his poor hollow chest, and I, ignorant why, and what will become of me? Ka! Ka! Ah! What the devil are you doing? Why don't you go to sleep? demanded his brother's voice. I don't know. Insomnia, I guess. But I have been sleeping beautifully. I have not had any sweat at all. Just feel. No sweat. Levin felt of him. Then he got into bed again, put out the candle. But it was long before he went to sleep. Still in his mind arose this new question, how to live so as to be ready for the inevitable death. There, he is dying. Yes, he will die in the spring. How can I aid him? What can I say to him? What do I know about it? I had even forgotten that there was such a thing. Levin had long before made the observation that often people who surprise you by an abrupt transition grow unendurable by reason of their gentleness and excessive humility, unreasonableness, and peremptory ways. He foresaw that this would be the case with his brother, and, in fact, Nikolai's sweet temper was not of long duration. On the very next morning he awoke in an extremely irritable temper, and immediately began to pick a quarrel with his brother by touching him on the most tender points. Levin felt himself to blame, but he could not be frank. He felt that if they had not both dissimulated their thoughts, but had spoken from their very hearts, they would have looked into each other's eyes, and he would have said only this, "'You are going to die. You are going to die.' And Nikolai would have answered only this, "'I know that I am dying, and I am afraid. Afraid. Afraid.' And they would have said nothing more if they had spoken honestly from their hearts. But as this sincerity was not possible— Constantine tried to do what all his life long he had never succeeded in doing, though he had observed that many persons could do it, and that without doing it life was almost impossible. He tried to talk about something that was not in his mind, and he felt that his brother divined his insincerity, and was therefore irritated and angry, and found fault with all that he said. On the third day Nikolai began to discuss the question of his brother's reforms, and to criticize them and in a spirit of contrariety, to confound his scheme with communism. You have only taken your idea from someone else, and you distort it, and want to apply it to what is not suited to receive it. Yes, 
but I tell you that the two have nothing in common. I have no thought of copying communism, which denies the right of property, of capital, of inheritance, but I do not disregard these stimuli. It went against Levin's grain to use these terms, but since he had begun his treatise he found himself, in spite of him, compelled to use non-Russian words. All I want is to regulate labor. In other words, you borrow a foreign idea. You take away from it all that gives it force, and you pretend to make it pass as new, said Nikolai, angrily craning his neck in his cravat. Yes, but my idea has not the slightest resemblance. This idea, interrupted Nikolai, smiling ironically, and with an angry light in his eyes, communism, has at least one attractive feature, and you might call it a geometrical one. It has clearness and logical certainty. Maybe it is utopia, but let us agree that it can make a tabula rasa of the past, so that there shall be no property of family, but only freedom of labor. But you don't accept this. But why do you confound them? I never was a communist. But I have been, and I believe that if communism is premature, it is, at least, reasonable, and it is as sure to succeed as Christianity was in the early centuries. And I believe that labor must be regarded from the scientific standpoint. In other words, it must be studied. Its constitution must be known, and— Now, that is absolutely idle. This force goes of itself, and takes different forms, according to the degrees of its development. Everywhere this order has been followed. Slaves— the Mateers, free labor, and here in Russia we have the farm, the errand or leasehold, our system of apprenticeship. What more do you want? Levin took fire at these last words, the more because he feared in his secret soul that his brother was right in blaming him for wanting to discover a balance between communism and the existing forms, a thing which was scarcely possible. I am trying to find a form of labor which will be profitable for all, for me and the laborer, he replied warmly. That is not what you wish to do. It is simply this. You have, all your life long, sought to be original, and you want to prove that you are not exploiting the music, but are working for a principle. Well, since you think so, let's end it, replied Constantine, feeling the muscles of his right cheek twitch involuntarily. You never had and you never will have, any convictions, and you only wanted to flatter your conceit. That is very well to say, but let us end the matter. Certainly I will. It was time long ago. You go to the devil, and I am sorry that I came. Levin tried in vain to calm him. Nikolai would not listen to a word, and persisted in saying that they had better separate, and Constantine saw that it was not possible to live with him. Nikolai had already made his preparations to depart, when Constantine came to him, and begged him, in a way that was not entirely natural, for forgiveness if he had offended him. "'Ah, now, here's magnanimity,' said Nikolai, smiling. "'If you are very anxious to be in the right, then let us agree that this is sensible. You are right, but I am going all the same.' At the last moment, however, as Nikolai kissed his brother, a strange look of seriousness came on him. "'Kostya,' he said, "'don't harbor any animosity against me,' and his voice trembled. These were the only words which were spoken sincerely. Levin understood that they meant, 
You see and know that I am miserable, and we may not meet again. Levin understood this, and the tears came into his eyes. Once more he kissed his brother, but he could not find anything to say. On the third day after his brother's departure, Levin went abroad. At the railway station he met Sherbatsky, Kitty's cousin, and astonished him greatly by his melancholy. "'What is the matter?' asked Sherbatsky. "'Well, nothing, except that there is little happiness in this world.' "'Little happiness? Just come with me to Paris instead of going to some place like Mulhouse. I'll show you how gay it is.' "'No, I am done for. I am ready to die.' "'What a joke!' said Sherbatsky, laughing. "'I am just learning how to begin.' I felt the same a little while ago, but now I know that my life will be short. Levin said what he honestly felt at this time. All that he saw before him was death or its approach. But still he was just as much interested as ever in his projects of reform. It was necessary to keep his life occupied till death should come. Darkness seemed to cover everything, but by reason of this darkness he felt that the only guiding thread through its labyrinth was to occupy himself with his labors of reform, and he clung to them with all the force of his character. End of chapter 31 and end of part 3 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle Part 4, Chapter 1 of Anna Karenina This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Marianne Spiegel. Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy. Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. Part 4, Chapter 1. Karenin and his wife continued to live in the same house, and to meet every day, and yet they remained entire strangers to each other. Alexey Alexandrovitch made a point every day to be seen with his wife, so that the servants might not have the right to gossip, but he avoided dining at home. Vronsky was never seen there. Anna met him outside, and her husband knew it. All three suffered from a situation which would have been intolerable for a single day, had not each believed it to be transitory. Alexey Alexandrovitch expected to see this passion, like everything else in the world, come to an end, and thus his name would not be dishonored. Anna, the cause of all the trouble, and the one on whom the consequences weighed the most cruelly, accepted her position simply and solely because she expected, nay, was firmly convinced, that the matter would soon be explained and settled. She had not the least idea how it would come about, but she was certain that it would now come about very speedily. Vronsky, in spite of himself, submitting to her views, was also awaiting something to happen independent of himself, which should resolve all their difficulty. Toward the middle of the winter Vronsky had to spend a very tiresome week. He was delegated to show a foreign prince about Petersburg. Vronsky himself was a representative Russian. Not only was he irreproachable in his bearing, but he was accustomed to the society of such exalted personages. Therefore he was given the charge of the prince, but this responsibility was very distasteful to him. The prince did not want to let anything pass concerning which he might be asked on his return, did you see that in Russia? And moreover, he wanted to enjoy as far as possible all the pleasures peculiar to the country. 
Vronsky was obliged to be his guide in the one and in the other. In the morning they went out to see the sights. In the evening they took part in the national amusements. The prince enjoyed exceptionally good health, even for a prince, and, owing to his gymnastic exercises and the scrupulous care he took of himself, notwithstanding the excesses to which he let his love for pleasure carry him, he remained as fresh as a great, green, shiny Dutch cucumber. He had been a great traveller, and had found that one of the great advantages of easy, modern communication consisted in the fact that it brought national amusements into easy reach. In Spain he had given serenades, and fallen in love with a Spanish girl who played the mandolin. In Switzerland he had killed a chamois. In England leaped ditches in a red shooting-jacket, and shot two hundred pheasants on a wager. In Turkey he had penetrated a harem. In India he had ridden the elephant, and now he wanted to taste the special pleasures that Russia afforded. Vronsky, as master of ceremonies, arranged, with no little difficulty, a program of amusement truly Russian in character. There were races, and blini, or carnival cakes, and bear hunts, and trioka parties and gypsies, and feasts set forth with Russian dishes, and the prince, with extraordinary appetite, entered into the spirit of these Russian sports, broke his waiter of glasses with the rest, took a gypsy girl on his knee, and apparently asked himself if the whole Russian spirit consisted only in this, without going further. In reality, the prince took more delight in French actresses, ballet dancers, and white seal champagne than in all the other pleasures which the Russians could offer him. Vronsky was accustomed to princes, but either because he had changed of late, or else because he had too close a view of this particular prince, the week seemed terribly burdensome to him. During the whole week, without cessation, he experienced a feeling like that of a man placed in charge of a dangerous lunatic, who dreaded his patient, and, at the same time, from very force of proximity, feared for his own reason. Vronsky was constantly under the necessity of keeping up the strictest barriers of official reserve in order not to feel insulted. The prince's behavior toward the very persons who, to Vronsky's amazement, were ready to crawl out of their skin to give him experiences of Russian amusements, was scornful. His criticism on the Russian women, whom he wanted to study, more than once made Vronsky go red with indignation. What irritated Vronsky most violently about this prince was that he could not help seeing himself in him, and what he saw in this mirror was not flattering to his vanity. What he saw there was a very stupid, a very self-confident, and very healthy, and very fastidious man, and that was all. He was a gentleman, and Vronsky could not deny the fact. He was smooth and frank with his superiors, free and easy with his equals, coolly kind toward his inferiors. Vronsky himself was exactly the same, and was proud of it, but in his relations to the prince he was the inferior, and this scornfully good-natured treatment of himself nettled him. "'Stupid ox! Is it possible I am like him?' he thought. However this may have been, at the end of the week, when he took leave of the prince, who was on his way to Moscow, he was delighted to be delivered from this inconvenient situation and this disagreeable mirror." They went directly to the station from a bear hunt, which had occupied all the night with brilliant exhibitions of Russian daring. End of chapter 1 Part 4, Chapter 2 of 
Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. On his return home, Vronsky found a note from Anna. She wrote, I am ill and unhappy. I cannot go out, and I cannot live longer without seeing you. Come this evening. Alexey Alexandrovitch will be at the council from seven o'clock till ten. This invitation, given in spite of her husband's formal prohibition, seemed strange to him, but he finally decided to go to Anna's. Since the beginning of the winter, Vronsky had been promoted as colonel. He had left the regiment and was living alone. After having finished his breakfast, he stretched himself out on the divan, and in five minutes the recollection of the wild scenes of the preceding days became curiously mingled in his mind with Anna and a peasant whipperin, who had performed an important part in the bear hunt, and finally he fell asleep. He awoke. Night had come. Shivering with apprehension, he hastily lighted the candle. "'What has happened to me? What terrible dream have I had?' he asked himself. "'Yes, yes, the peasant, a dirty little man with a disheveled beard, bent something or other up double, and pronounced some strange words in French. I didn't dream anything else. Why am I so terrified?' But, in recalling the peasant and his incomprehensible French words, a sense of something horrible sent a cold shiver down his back. What nonsense, he thought, as he looked at his watch. It was already half-past eight. He called his man, dressed quickly, went out, and entirely forgetting his dream, thought only of being late. As he approached the Karenin's house, he again looked at his watch, and saw that it lacked ten minutes of nine. A high, narrow carriage, drawn by two grey horses, stood in front of the door. He recognized Anna's carriage. She was coming to my house, he said to himself. And it would be better. It is disagreeable for me to go into this house, but it makes no difference to me. I cannot conceal myself. And, with the manner of a man accustomed from childhood to act above board, he left his sleigh and mounted the steps. The door opened, and the Swiss, carrying a plaid, motioned to the carriage to draw near. Vronsky, who was not accustomed to observe details, was struck by the look of astonishment which the Swiss gave him. At the door, Vronsky came near running into Alexey Alexandrovitch. A gaslight placed at the entrance of the vestibule threw full light on his pale, worn face. He wore a black hat and a white cravat showing under a fur collar. Karenin's gloomy, dull eyes fixed themselves on Vronsky, who bowed, Alexey Alexandrovitch, drawing his lips together, raised his hand to his hat and passed. Vronsky saw him get into his carriage without turning round, take his plaid and opera-glass, which the Swiss servant handed through the door, and disappear. Vronsky went into the anteroom. His brows were contracted, and his eyes flashed with anger and outraged pride. What a situation, thought Vronsky, if he would fight to defend his honor— I should know what to do to express my sentiments. But this weakness, or cowardice, he places me in the position of a deceiver, which I never was and never will be. Since the explanation that he had had with Anna in the Verda garden, Vronsky's idea had greatly changed. Involuntarily overcome by Anna's weakness, for she had given herself to him without reserve and expected from him only the decision as to her future fate, Vronsky had long ceased to think that this liaison might end up as he supposed it would. His ambitious plans had again been relegated to the background, and he, 
feeling that he had definitely left that circle of activity where everything was determined, gave himself up entirely to his feeling, and this feeling drew him more and more vigorously towards her. Even in the reception room, he heard her footsteps drawing near. He knew that she was waiting for him, and had just entered the drawing-room nearby, to watch for him. "'No,' she cried, seeing him enter. "'Things cannot go on this way.' and at the sound of her own voice her eyes filled with tears. "'If this is going on this way, it would be far better if it had ended long ago.' "'What is the matter, my friend?' "'The matter! I have been waiting in torture for two hours. But no, I do not want to quarrel with you. Of course you could not come. No, I will not scold you any more.' She put her two hands on his shoulders, and looked at him long, with her eyes deep and tender, although searching. She studied his face for all the time that she had not seen him. As always happened every time they met, she tried to compare her imaginary presentment of him, it was incomparably better, because it was impossible in reality, with him as he really was. End of chapter 2 Part 4, Chapter 3 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. Did you meet him? she asked, when they were seated under the lamp by the drawing-room table. That is your punishment for coming so late. Yes. How did it happen? Should he not have been at the council? He went there, but he came back again, and now he has gone off somewhere again. But that is no matter. Let us talk no more about it. But where have you been, all this time with the prince? She knew the most minute details of his life. He wanted to reply that as he had no rest the night before, he allowed himself to oversleep, but the sight of her happy, excited face made this acknowledgment difficult, and he excused himself on the plea of having been obliged to go and present his report about the prince's departure. It is over now, is it? Has he gone? Yes. Thank the Lord, it is all done with. You have no idea how intolerable this week has seemed to me. Why so? Here you have not been leading the life customary to young men, she said, frowning, and, without looking at Vronsky, she took up some crocheting that was lying on the table and pulled out the needle. I renounced that life long ago, he replied, wondering at the sudden change in her beautiful face, and trying to discover what it portended. I assure you, he added, smiling, and showing his white teeth, that it was overpoweringly unpleasant to me to look at that old life again, as it were, in a mirror. She kept her crocheting in her hand, although she did not work, but looked at him with strange, brilliant, not quite friendly eyes. Liza came to see me this morning. They are not yet afraid to come to my house, in spite of the Countess Lydia Ivanovna, and here she stood up, and told me about your Athenian knights. What an abomination! I only wanted to tell you that, she interrupted him, that it was Teresa, whom you used to know. I was going to say, how odious you men are. How can you suppose that a woman forgets? And she, growing more and more animated, and then disclosing the cause of her irritation, and above all a woman who can know nothing of your life. What can I know except what you wish to tell me? And how can I know whether it is the truth? Anna, you insult me. Have you no longer any faith in me? Have I not told you that I have no thoughts which I would conceal from you? 
"'Yes, yes,' she said, trying to drive away her jealous fears. "'But if you only knew how I suffer! I believe in you. I do believe in you. But what did you want to say to me?' He could not instantly remember what he wanted to say. Anna's fits of jealousy were becoming more and more frequent, and, however much he tried to conceal it, these scenes made him grow cool toward her, although he knew that the cause of the jealousy was her very love for him. How many times had he not said to himself that happiness existed for him only in this love, and now that she loved him as only a woman can love for whom love outweighs all other treasures in life, happiness seemed farther off than when he had followed her from Moscow. Then he considered himself unhappy, but happiness was in sight. Now he felt that their highest happiness was in the past. She was entirely different from what she had been when he first saw her. Both morally and physically she had changed for the worse. The beauty of her form was gone, and when she spoke about the French actress, a wicked expression came over her face which spoiled it. He looked at her as a man looks at a flower which he has plucked, and which has faded, and he finds it hard to recognize the beauty for the sake of which he had plucked it and despoiled it. And yet he felt that at the time when his passion was more violent, he might, if he had earnestly desired it, have torn his love out of his heart. But now, at the very time when it seemed to him that he felt no love for her, he knew that the tie that bound him to her was indissoluble. "'Well, well, tell me what you have to say about the prince.' replied Anna. I have driven away the demon. I have driven him away, she added. Between themselves they called their jealousy the demon. You began to tell me something about the prince. Why was it so disagreeable to you? Oh, it was unbearable, replied Vronsky, trying to pick up the thread of his thought again. The prince doesn't improve on close acquaintance. I can only compare him to one of those highly fed animals which take first prizes at exhibitions, he added with an air of vexation which seemed to interest Anna. No, but how? Is he not a cultivated man, who has seen much of the world? It is an entirely different kind of cultivation, their cultivation. One would say that he was cultivated only for the sake of scorning cultivation, as he scorns everything else, except animal pleasures. But are you not also fond of all these animal pleasures yourself? said Anna, and once more he noticed the gloomy look in her eyes which avoided his. "'Why do you defend him?' he asked, smiling. "'I am not defending him. It is all absolutely indifferent to me. But it seems to me, if you do not like these pleasures, you might dispense with them. But you enjoy going to see that Teresa in the costume of Eve.' "'There is the demon again,' said Vronsky, taking her hand which lay on the table, and kissing it. "'Yes, but I can't help it. You can't imagine what I suffered while I was waiting for you. I do not think I am jealous. I am not jealous. When you are here with me, I believe in you. But when you are away, leading a life so incomprehensible to me... She drew away from him, drew the crochet needle out of her work, and, speedily, with the help of her index finger, the stitches of white wool gleaming in the lamplight began one after another to take form, and swiftly, nervously, the delicate wrist moved back and forth in the embroidered cuff. "'Tell me, how was it? Where did you meet Alexey Alexandrovitch?' she asked suddenly, in a voice still sounding unnatural. "'We ran against each other at the door. And did he greet you like this?' She drew down her face and, half-closing her eyes, instantly changed her whole expression, 
and Vronsky suddenly saw the same look in her pretty features, which Alexey Alexandrovitch had worn when he bowed to him. He smiled, and Anna began to laugh, with that fresh, ringing laugh which was one of her greatest charms. "'I really do not understand him,' said Vronsky. "'I should have supposed that after your explanation at the dacha, he would have broken off with you and provoked a duel with me. But how can he endure such a situation? He suffers, that is evident.' "'He?' she said with a sneer. Oh, he is perfectly content. Why should we all torture ourselves in this way, when everything might be so easily arranged? Only that doesn't suit him. Oh, don't I know him, and the falsity on which he subsists? How could he live as he lives with me if he had any feelings? He has no susceptibilities, no feelings. Could a man of any susceptibilities live in the same house with his guilty wife, how can he talk to her? How can he address her familiarly? And again she imitated the way her husband would say, Tui, ma chère, tui, Anna. He is not a man, I tell you. He is a puppet. No one knows it, but I know it. Oh, if I had been in his place, I would long ago have killed, have torn to pieces, a wife like myself, instead of saying, Tui, ma chère, Anna, to her. But he is not a man. He is a ministerial machine. He does not understand that I am your wife, that he is nothing to me, that he is in the way. No, no, let us not talk about him. You are unjust, my dear, said Vronsky, trying to calm her. But all the same, let us not talk any more about him. Tell me how you do. How are you? You wrote me you were ill. What did the doctor say? She looked at him with gay realty. Evidently she saw ridiculous and abominable traits in her husband, and would willingly have continued to speak about them. But he added, "'I suspect that you are not really ill, but that it comes from your condition. When will it be?' The sarcastic gleam disappeared from Anna's eyes, but suddenly a different kind of smile, a token of a gentle melancholy, of some feeling he could not comprehend, took its place. "'Soon, very soon. You said our position is painful.' and that it must be changed. If you knew how hard it is for me, what I would give to be able to love you freely and openly, I should not torment myself, and I should not torment you with my jealousy. And this will be soon, but not in the way we think. And at the thought of how this would take place, she felt such pity for herself that the tears filled her eyes, and she could not go on. She put her white hand, with the ring sparkling in the lamplight, on Vronsky's arm, this will not be as we think. I did not intend to speak to you about this, but you compel me to. Soon, very soon, every knot will be disentangled, and all of us, all, will be at peace, and we shall not be tormented any more. I do not know what you mean, he said, yet he understood her. You ask, when will it be? Soon, and I shall not survive it. Don't interrupt me, and she went on speaking rapidly. I know it. I am perfectly certain I am going to die. And I am glad to die, and to free myself, and you. Her tears continued to fall. Vronsky bent over her hand and began to kiss it, and tried to conceal his own emotion, which he knew he had no ground for feeling, but which he could not overcome. It is better that it should be so, she said, pressing his hand fervently. It is the only thing, the only thing left for us. "'What a foolish idea,' said Vronsky, lifting up his head and regaining his self-possession. 
What utter nonsense you are talking! No, it is the truth. What do you mean by the truth? That I am going to die. I have seen it in a dream. In a dream, repeated Vronsky, involuntarily recalling the music of his nightmare. Yes, in a dream, she continued. I had this dream a long time ago. I dreamed that I ran into my room to get something or other. I was searching about, you know, as one does in dreams, she said, opening her eyes wide with horror. And I noticed something standing in the corner of my room. What nonsense! How do you suppose? But she would not let him interrupt her. What she was telling was too important to her. And this something turned around, and I saw a little dirty music with an unkept beard. I wanted to run away, but he bent toward a bag, in which he moved some object. She made the motion of a person rummaging in a bag. Terror was depicted on her face, and Vronsky, recalling his own dream, felt the same terror seize his soul. And all the while he was searching, he talked fast, very fast, in French, lisping, you know, Il font le batre, le fer, le broyer, le petre. I tried to wake up, but I only woke up in my dream, asking what it could mean. And Carnei said to me, You are going to die, you are going to die in childbed, Matushka. And at last I woke up. What an absurd dream, said Vronsky, but he himself felt that there was no conviction in his voice. But let us say no more about it. Ring, I am going to give you some tea, so stay a little longer. It is a long time since I— She suddenly ceased speaking. The expression of her face instantly changed. Horror and emotion disappeared from her face, which assumed an expression of gentle, serious, and affectionate solicitude. He could not understand the significance of that change. She had felt within her the motion of a new life. End of chapter 3「Four, Chapter Four of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by Marianne Spiegel. After meeting Vronsky on the porch, Alexey Alexandrovitch went, as he had planned, to the Italian opera. He sat through two acts and saw everyone whom he needed to see. Returning home, he looked carefully at the hat rack and having assured himself that there was no uniform overcoat in the vestibule, went straight to his chamber. Contrary to his usual habit, instead of going to bed, he walked up and down his room till three o'clock in the morning. Anger kept him awake, for he could not forgive his wife for not being willing to observe the proprieties, and for not fulfilling the one condition that he had imposed on her, that she should not receive her lover in his house. She had not complied with his requirement, and he felt bound to punish her, carry out his threat, demand a divorce, and take away his son from her. He knew all the difficulties that would attend this action, but he had said that he should do it, and now he was bound to carry out his threat. The Countess Lydia had often said that this was the easiest way out of his position, and recently the practice of divorce had reached such a pitch of perfection that Alexey Alexandrovitch saw in it a means of escaping its formal difficulties. Moreover, misfortunes never come single, and the trouble arising from the organization of the foreign population and the irrigation of the fields in the government of Zarai had caused Alexey Alexandrovitch so much unpleasantness in his office that for some time he had been in a perpetual state of irritation. 
he passed the night without sleeping, and his anger increasing all the while in a sort of colossal system of progression, by morning was directed even to the most trivial object. He dressed hastily, and went to Anna as soon as he knew she was up. He was afraid of losing the energy which he needed for his explanation with his wife. It was as if he carried a full cup of wrath, and was afraid of spilling it. Anna believed that she thoroughly knew her husband, but she was amazed at his appearance as he came in. His brows were contracted, and his eyes looked gloomily straight ahead, avoiding hers. His lips were firm and scornfully compressed. Never had his wife seen so much decision as she saw now in his gait, in every motion, in the sound of his voice. He entered without wishing her good morning, and went directly to her writing-desk, and, taking the key, opened the drawer. "'What do you want?' cried Anna. "'Your lover's letters.' "'They are not there,' she said, closing the drawer, but he knew by her action that he had guessed aright, and, roughly pushing away her hand, he quickly seized the portfolio in which he knew Anna kept her important papers. She attempted to regain it, but he held it at a distance. "'Sit down. I want to speak to you,' he said, placing the portfolio under his arm, and holding it so firmly with his elbow that his shoulder was raised by it. Anna looked at him, astonished and frightened, but said nothing. "'I told you that I would not permit you to receive your lover in this house. I needed to see him to—' She stopped, unable to find a plausible explanation. "'I will not enter into details, and have no desire to know why a woman needs to see her lover.' "'I wished—' "'I only,' she said, flashing up and feeling that her husband's rudeness made her bold. "'Is it possible that you are not aware how easy it is for you to insult me?' "'One can insult only an honest man or an honest woman. But to tell a thief that he is a thief is only la constatation de la fonte, the statement of a fact.' "'That is a degree of cruelty that I never recognized in you.' "'Ah!' You find a husband cruel because he gives his wife perfect freedom, gives her the protection of an honest, noble name, on the sole condition that she respect the laws of propriety. You call that cruelty. It is worse than cruelty. It is cowardice, if you insist on knowing, cried Anna, with an outburst of anger, and, rising, she started to go. No, cried he, in his piping voice, which was now a tone higher than usual, and seizing her by the arm with his great bony fingers so roughly that one of Anna's bracelets left a red print on her flesh, he forced her back into her place. "'Cowardice, indeed! If you wish to employ that word, apply it to her who abandons her son and husband for a lover, and nevertheless eats her husband's bread.' Anna bowed her head. She not only did not say what she had said the evening before to her lover, that he was her husband while her husband was in the way, she did not even think it. She appreciated all the justice of his words, and she replied in a low voice, "'You cannot judge my position more severely than I do myself. But why do you say all this?' "'Why do I say this?' continued he as angrily as ever, "'so that you may know that since you have paid no attention to my wishes, and have broken the rules of propriety, I shall take measures to put an end to this state of affairs.' Soon." very soon it will terminate itself said anna and again at the thought of that death which she felt near at hand and now so desirable 
her eyes filled with tears. "'Sooner even than you and your lover have dreamed of. You need to make atonement by keen suffering.' "'Alexey Alexandrovitch, I do not say that this is not magnanimous, but it is not gentlemanly to strike one who is down.' "'You only think of yourself. The suffering of one who has been your husband is of little interest to you. It is a matter of indifference to you that his life has been overthrown, that he suffers Alexey Alexandrovitch spoke so rapidly that he stammered and could not speak the word. This seemed ridiculous to Anna, but she immediately was ashamed of herself, because anything could seem to her ridiculous at such a moment. For the first time, and for a moment, she felt for him, and entered into his feelings, and pitied him. But what could she say or do? She bowed her head and was silent. He also was silent for a little then began again in a less piercing and colder voice, emphasizing the words of no special importance. "'I came to tell you,' she glanced at him. "'No, that proves it to me,' she said to herself, as she remembered the expression of his face as he stammered over the words suffered. "'No, how can a man, with his dull eyes, so full of calm self-satisfaction, feel anything?' "'I cannot change,' she murmured. I have come to tell you that to-morrow I am going to Moscow, and that I shall not enter this house again. You will learn of my determination from the lawyer who will have charge of the preliminaries of the divorce. My son will go to my sister, he added, recalling with difficulty what he wanted to say about the child. You want to take Sir Rosa away so as to cause me pain, she cried, glaring at him. You do not love him. Leave Sir Rosa. Yes. I have lost even my love for my son, because the repulsion you inspire in me includes him. But I shall keep him, nevertheless. Good morning. He was about to go, but she detained him. Alexey Alexandrovitch, Lisa Rosa with me, she whispered again. That is all I ask of you. Leave him with me till my... I shall soon be confined. Leave him with me. Alexey Alexandrovitch flushed with indignation pushed away the arm that held him back, and left her without replying. End of chapter 4 Part 4, Chapter 5 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel the reception-room of the celebrated Petersburg lawyer was full of people when Alexey Alexandrovitch entered it. Three ladies, one old, another young, and a merchant's wife. Three men, a German banker with a ring on his hand, a merchant with a beard, and a sullen-looking official in undress uniform, with a decoration around his neck, had apparently been waiting a long time. Two clerks were writing with scratching pens, their writing utensils, and Alexey Alexandrovitch was a connoisseur of such things, were of unusual excellence. Alexey could not fail to take note of that fact. One of the clerks turned his head with an air of annoyance toward the newcomer, and, without rising, asked him with half-closed eyes, "'What do you want?' "'I have business with the lawyer.' "'He is busy,' replied the clerk, severely, pointing with his pen toward those who were already waiting, and he went back to his writing. "'Will he not find a moment to receive me?' asked Alexey Alexandrovitch. "'He is not at liberty a single moment. He is always busy. Have the goodness to wait.' "'Be so good as to give him my card,' said Alexey Alexandrovitch, with dignity, 
seeing that it was impossible to preserve his incognito. The secretary took his card, and, evidently not approving of it, left the room. Alexey Alexandrovitch, on principle, approved of public courts, but he did not fully sympathize with certain details of its application in Russia, because of his acquaintance with its working in the best official relations, and he criticized them as far as he could criticize anything that received the sanction of the supreme power. His whole life was spent in administrative activity, and consequently, when he did not sympathize with anything, his lack of sympathy was modified by his recognition of the fact that errors were unavoidable, but that some things might be remedied. In the new judicial arrangement he did not approve of the conditions in which the lawyers were placed. Hitherto he had not had occasion to deal with lawyers, and so he had disapproved of the system only theoretically. But now his disapprobation was greatly increased by the disagreeable impression made on him in the lawyer's reception-room. "'The lawyer will be out immediately,' said the clerk, and in reality in about two minutes the door opened, and the lawyer appeared, together with a tall justice of the peace.' The lawyer was a short, thick-set man, with a bald head, a dark reddish beard, a prominent forehead, and long, shiny eyebrows. His dress, from his necktie and double watch-chain down to his polished boots, was that of a dandy. His face was intelligent, but vulgar. His manner, pretentious and in bad taste. "'Be so good as to walk in,' said he, addressing Alexey Alexandrovitch, and gloomily ushering him into the next room, he closed the door." "'Will you not sit?' He pointed to an armchair near his desk, covered with papers, and rubbing his short, hairy hands together, he settled himself in front of the desk, and bent his head to one side. But he was hardly seated when a moth-miller flew on the table, and the little man, with unexpected liveliness, caught it on the wing. Then he quickly resumed his former attitude. "'Before beginning to explain my business,' said Alexey Alexandrovitch, following the movements of the lawyer with astonishment. I must inform you that the subject which brings me here is to be kept secret. An imperceptible smile slightly moved the lawyer's projecting reddish moustache. If I were not capable of keeping the secrets entrusted to me, I should not be a lawyer, said he. But if you wish to be assured... Alexey Alexandrovitch glanced at him, and noticed that his grey eyes, full of intelligence, had apparently read all that he had to tell. "'Do you know my name?' asked Alexey Alexandrovitch. "'I know you, and how valuable,' here again he caught a miller, "'your services are, as every Russian does,' replied the lawyer, bowing. Alexey Alexandrovitch sighed. With difficulty he brought himself to speak, but when he had once begun he continued unhesitatingly in a clear, sharp voice, emphasizing certain words. "'I have the misfortune to be a deceived husband.' I wish to obtain legal separation from my wife, that is, a divorce, and, above all, to separate my son from his mother. The lawyer's grey eyes did their best to remain serious, but they danced with unrestrained delight, and Alexey Alexandrovitch saw that they were full of an amusement not caused solely by the prospect of a good suit. They shone with enthusiasm, with triumph, something like the brilliancy he had noticed in his wife's eyes. "'You wish my assistance to obtain the divorce?' "'Yes, exactly. "'But I must warn you that I run the risk of wasting your time. "'I have come only to ask preliminary advice. "'I wish a divorce, 
but for me certain forms are essential in which it is possible. Very possibly I shall give up the idea of any legal attempt if these forms do not coincide with my requirements. Oh, that is always the way, said the lawyer. You will always remain perfectly free. The little man, that he might not offend his client by the delight which his face ill-concealed, fixed his eyes on Alexey Alexandrovitch's feet. He saw a mouth flying in front of his nose, and he put out his hand, but he restrained himself, out of respect to Alexey Alexandrovitch's situation. "'The general features of the laws of divorce are well known to me,' continued Alexey Alexandrovitch, "'but I should like to have a general knowledge of the formalities which are employed in the practical settlement of affairs of this kind.' "'You wish,' replied the lawyer, not raising his eyes and entering with no little satisfaction into the spirit of his client's words, "'You wish me to expound for you the way whereby your wishes may be fulfilled.' And, as Alexey Alexandrovitch assented with an inclination of his head, he continued, casting a furtive glance now and then at his face, which was flushed with red spots. "'Divorce, according to our laws,' said he, with a slight shade of disdain for our laws, is possible, as you know, in the following cases. Let them wait, he cried, seeing his clerk open the door. However, he rose, went to say a few words to him, came back, and sat down again. In the following cases. A physical defect of one of the parties. Next, the unexplained absence of one of them for five years. In making this enumeration he bent his short hairy fingers, one after another. And finally, adultery. This word he pronounced with evident satisfaction. The categories are as follows. He kept on doubling over his fat fingers, although the case before him and the categories, it was plain enough, could not be classified together. A physical incapacity of husband or wife. Then adultery of husband or wife. Then, as all his fingers were closed, he raised them all again and proceeded. This is the theoretical view, but I think that, in doing me the honor to consult me, you desire to know the practical side, do you not? And therefore, guiding myself by antecedents, it is my duty to inform you that as this case is neither one of physical defect, nor absence of one of the parties, as I understand? Alexey Alexandrovitch bowed his head in confirmation of this. The reason last named remains. Adultery and the conviction of the guilty party by mutual consent, and without mutual consent, compulsory conviction. I must say that the last case is rarely met with in practice, said the lawyer, and he glanced at his client and waited, like a gunsmith who explains to a purchaser the use of two pistols of different caliber, leaving him free to choose between them. But Alexey Alexandrovitch remaining silent, he continued, The commonest, simplest and most reasonable way, in my opinion, is to recognize the guilt by mutual agreement. I should not allow myself to say this if I were talking to a man of less experience than yourself, said the lawyer, but I suppose that this is comprehensible to you. Alexey Alexandrovitch, however, was so troubled that he did not at the first moment realize the reasonableness of adultery by mutual agreement, and this uncertainty was to be read in his eyes, but the lawyer came at once to his aid. Suppose that a man and wife can no longer live together. If both consent to a divorce, the details and formalities amount to nothing. This is the simplest and surest way. 
Alexey Alexandrovitch understood now, but he had religious convictions which stood in the way of his employing this measure. In the present case, this means is out of the question, said he. Here only one case is possible, compulsory conviction, supported by letters which are in my possession. At the mention of letters, the lawyer, pressing his lips together, uttered an exclamation both of pity and disdain. "'Please take notice,' he began. "'Affairs of this sort are, as you well know, decided by the upper clergy,' he said. "'Our fathers, the protopopes, are great connoisseurs in affairs of this kind, and attend to the minutest details,' said he, with a smile which showed his sympathy for the protopopes. "'Letters undoubtedly might serve as partial evidence, but proofs must be furnished in the right way.' by witnesses. However, if you do me the honour to grant me your confidence, you must give me the choice of measures to be pursued. Where there is a will, there is a way. If that is so, began Alexey Alexandrovitch, suddenly growing very pale. But at that instant the lawyer again ran to the door, to reply to a fresh interruption from the clerk. Tell her, then, that this is not a cheap shop, said he, and returned to Alexey Alexandrovitch. As he returned to his place, he caught another moth. "'My reps will be in a fine condition by summer,' he said to himself, scowling. "'You were kind enough to say.' "'I will communicate to you my decision by letter,' replied Alexey Alexandrovitch, standing up and leaning his hand on the table. After standing for a moment in thought, he said, "'From your words I conclude that a divorce is possible. I shall be obliged to you if you will make your conditions known to me.' "'Everything is possible, if you will give me entire freedom of action,' said the lawyer, eluding the last question. "'When may I expect a communication from you?' asked he, moving to the door with eyes as shiny as his boots. "'Within a week. You will then have the goodness to let me know whether you accept the case, and on what terms?' "'Very good.' The lawyer bowed respectfully, conducted his client to the door, and when he was left alone, he gave vent to his feelings of joy." He felt so gay that, contrary to his principles, he made a deduction to a lady skilled in the art of making a bargain, and neglected to catch a moth, resolving definitely that he would have his furniture upholstered the next winter with velvet, as Sagonin had. End of chapter 5「Part 4, Chapter 6 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. Alexey Alexandrovitch had won a brilliant victory at the session of the Commission of August 29, but the consequences of his victory were injurious to him. The new committee appointed to study the situation of the foreign population had been constituted and had gone to its field of action with a promptness and energy surprising to Alexey Alexandrovitch. At the end of three months it presented its report. The condition of this population had been studied from a political, administrative, economical, ethnographical, material, and religious point of view. Each question was followed by an admirably concise reply, leaving no room to doubt that these answers were the work, not of a human mind, always liable to mistake, but of an experienced bureaucracy. These answers were based on official data, such as the reports of governors and archbishops, based again on the reports of heads of districts and ecclesiastical superintendents, in their turn based on the reports from communal administrations and country priests, 
and therefore their correctness could not be doubted. Questions such as these, why are the harvests poor, and why do the inhabitants of certain localities persist in their beliefs, and the like, questions which without the help of the official machine could never be solved, and to which ages would not have found a reply, were clearly solved, in conformity with the opinions of Alexey Alexandrovitch. But Stremov, feeling that he had been touched to the quick at the last session, had employed for the reception of the committee's report a stratagem unexpected by Alexey Alexandrovitch. Taking with him several other members, he suddenly went over to Karenin's side, and, not satisfied with warmly supporting the measures proposed by Alexey Alexandrovitch, he proposed others, of the same nature. These measures, which were of such a radical nature as to be entirely opposed to Alexey Alexandrovitch's intention, were adopted, and then Stremov's tactics were revealed. Carried to extremes, these measures seemed so ridiculous that the government officials, and public opinion, and ladies of influence, and the daily papers, all attacked them and expressed the greatest indignation both at the measures themselves and at their avowed promoter, Alexey Alexandrovitch. Stremov slipped out of sight, pretending that he only blindly followed Karenin's plan, and that he himself was amazed and dumbfounded at what had happened. This greatly weakened Alexey Alexandrovitch, but notwithstanding his enfeebled health, notwithstanding his family annoyances, he did not give up. The committee was split into two factions, some of them, with Stremov at their head, explained their mistake by the fact that they had placed full confidence in the revisionary committee which, under the lead of Alexey Alexandrovitch, had brought in its report, and they declared the report of this committee of inspection was rubbish and so much wasted paper. Alexey Alexandrovitch, with a party of men who saw the peril of such a revolutionary reference to documents, continued to support the data worked out by the revisionary committee. As a result of this, the highest circles, and even society, was thrown into confusion, and always this was a question of the greatest interest to everyone. No one could make out whether the foreign populations were in reality suffering and dying out, or flourishing. Karenin's position in consequence of this, and partly in consequence of the contempt which people felt for him by reason of his wife's unfaithfulness, became very precarious. In this state of affairs he made an important resolution. To the great astonishment of the commission, he announced that he demanded the right to go and study these questions himself on the spot, and, permission having been granted him, Alexey Alexandrovitch set out for the distant provinces. His departure made a great sensation, especially from the fact that, at his very departure, he officially refused the travelling expenses required for twelve post-horses to take him to the places of inspection. I think that was very noble of him, said Betsy to the Princess Mayakaya. Why should they pay for post-horses, when everyone knows that you can go everywhere nowadays by rail? But the Princess Mayakaya did not agree with her, and she was greatly wrought up by the Princess Tverskaya's remark. This is very well for you to say, she replied, when you have I don't know how many millions. But I like it very much when my husband goes off on a tour of inspection in the summer, it is very healthy and agreeable for him to go driving about, but I have made it a rule to keep that money for my own horse hire and Izvazhcheks. On his way to the distant provinces, Alexey Alexandrovitch stopped at Moscow three days. 
The next day after his arrival, he was coming from a call on the Governor-General. At the crossing of the Gazetnoy Street, where carriages of every description are always thronging, he heard his name called in such a gay, sonorous voice that he could not help stopping. There stood Stefan Arkadyevitch on the sidewalk, in a short, stylish pelotot, with a stylish hat set on one side, with a radiant smile which showed his white teeth between his red lips, gay, youthful-looking, brilliant. He kept calling to him, and beckoning to him to stop. He was holding by one hand to the window of a carriage which had drawn up to the sidewalk, and in the carriage was a woman in a velvet hat, with two little ones. She also beckoned to him and smiled. It was Dolly and her children. Alexey Alexandrovitch had not counted on seeing in Moscow anyone whom he knew, and least of all his wife's brother. He took off his hat and would have proceeded, but Stefan Arkadyevitch motioned to the coachman to stop, and ran through the snow to the carriage. "'How long have you been here? What a sin not to let us know you were coming! I was at Dussault's last evening, and saw the name of Karinin on the list of arrivals, but it never occurred to me that it was you, else I should have looked you up,' said he, passing his head through the door. "'How glad I am to see you,' he went on to say, striking his feet together to shake off the snow. "'What a sin not to let us know!' "'I hadn't time,' I am very busy, replied Alexey Alexandrovitch curtly. Come and speak to my wife. She wants to see you very much. Alexey Alexandrovitch threw off the plaid which covered his chilly limbs, and, leaving his carriage, made a way through the snow to Darya Alexandrovna. Why, what has happened, Alexey Alexandrovitch, that you avoid us in this way? said she, smiling. I was very busy. I am delighted to see you, replied Karenin, in a tone which clearly proved that he was annoyed. How is your health? How is my dear Anna? Alexey Alexandrovitch muttered a few words, and was about to leave her, but Stefan Arkadyevitch detained him. Do you know what we are going to do tomorrow? Dolly, invite him to dinner. Have Kuznoyshev and Pestov, so as to regale him with the representative intellects of Moscow. Oh, please come, said Dolly. We will name any hour that is convenient. Five or six, as you please, but how is my dear Anna? It is so long. She is well, muttered Alexey Alexandrovitch, again frowning. Very happy to have met you. And he went back to his carriage. Will you come? cried Dolly again. Alexey Alexandrovitch said something in reply which Dolly could not hear in the rumble of carriages. I am coming to see you tomorrow, cried Stefan Arkadyevitch. Alexey Alexandrovitch shut himself up in his carriage and crouched down in one corner so as not to see, and not to be seen. "'What a strange fellow!' said Stepan Arkadyevitch to his wife, and, looking at his watch, he made an affectionate sign of farewell to his wife and children, and started off down the sidewalk at a brisk pace. "'Steva! Steva!' cried Dolly, blushing. He came back. "'I must have some money for the children's cloaks. Give me some.' "'No matter about that. Tell them that I will settle the bill.' And he disappeared, gaily nodding to some acquaintance as he went. End of chapter 6 Part 4, Chapter 7 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel The next day was Sunday, and Stefan Arkadyevitch went to the Bolshoi, or Great Theatre, to attend the rehearsal of the ballet, and give the coral necklace to Masha Chibosobaya, 
the pretty dancing-girl who was making her debut under his protection, and as he had promised the day before, and behind the scenes in the dim twilight of the theatre, he seized his opportunity, and kissed her pretty little face glowing with pleasure at his gift. Besides fulfilling his promise as to the coral necklace, he wanted to arrange with her for an assignation after the ballet. Having explained to her that he could not possibly manage to be present at the beginning of the ballet, he promised to come for the next act, and take her out for supper. From the theatre, Stefan Arkadyevitch went to the Okotnoi Ryad, himself selected a fish and asparagus for the dinner, and at noon he went to Dussault's, where three travellers, friends of his, by happy chance were stopping. Levin, just returned from his journey abroad, his new Nachalnik, or chief, who had just been appointed and had come to Moscow to look into affairs, and lastly, his brother-in-law, Karinin, whom he was bound to invite to dinner. Stefan Arkadyevitch liked to go out to dinner, but what he liked better still was to give a choice little dinner-party with a few select friends. The program that he made out for this day pleased him. Fresh perch, with asparagus, and a simple but superb roast of beef, as piece de resistance, and the right kinds of wine. Among the guests he expected Kitty and Levin, and, to offset them, a cousin and the young Sherbatsky. The piece de resistance among the guests were to be Sergei Kosnoyshev, a Muscovite and philosopher, and Karinin, a Petersburger and a man of affairs. Moreover, he would invite the well-known Pestov, a comical fellow, a youth of fifty years, an enthusiast, a musician, a ready talker, a historian, and a liberal, who would be the sauce, or garnish, for Kuznoyshev and Alexey Alexandrovitch. He would put everyone in good spirits, and stir them up. The second installment of money from the sale of the wood had been recently received, and was not all gone. Dolly for some time had been lovely and charming, and the thought of this dinner in every respect delighted Stefan Arkadyevitch. He was in the happiest frame of mind. There were two things which were rather disagreeable, but these two circumstances were drowned in the sea of joviality which rolled its billows in Stefan Arkadyevitch's soul. These two circumstances were, in the first place, when the evening before he had met Alexey Alexandrovitch on the street, he had perceived that he was stern and cold, and uniting the fact that Alexey Alexandrovitch had not called or sent word of his presence with certain rumours that had reached his ears about his sister's relations with Vronsky, Stefan Arkadyevitch suspected serious trouble between the husband and wife. This was one unpleasant thing. The second slight shadow was the fact that the new Nachalnik, like all new chiefs, had the reputation of being a terribly exacting man, who got up at six o'clock, worked like a horse, and demanded similar zeal from his subordinates. Moreover, this new Nachalnik had the reputation of being a regular bear in his manners, and was, according to rumour, a man of the opposite party from that to which his predecessor had belonged, and to which Stefan Arkadyevitch himself had up to that time also belonged. The afternoon before, Stefan Arkadyevitch had appeared at the office in full uniform, and the new Nachalnik had been very cordial, and had talked with Oblonsky as with an old friend. Consequently, he thought it his duty to pay him an unofficial visit. The thought that the new Nachalnik might not receive him cordially was a second disturbing element. But Stefan Arkadyevitch felt instinctively that all would be arranged to perfection. All people, all men, are transgressors as well as we. Why get angry and quarrel? he said to himself, as he went to the hotel. 
"'How are you, Vasily?' said he, as he went through the corridor with his hat cocked on one side, and met a lackey of his acquaintance. "'Have you sacrificed your whiskers? Levin, In number seven. Please show me. Thanks. Do you know, is Count Anitchkin at home?' This was the new Nichalnik. "'At your service,' said Vasily with a smile. "'We have not seen you for a long time.' I was here yesterday, but came up another stairway. Is this number seven? When Stefan Arkadyevitch entered, Levin was standing in the middle of his room, with a muzik from Tver, measuring a bearskin. Ah, did you kill him? cried Stefan Arkadyevitch. Splendid skin! A bear! How are you, Arkip? He held out his hand to the peasant, and then sat down in his paletot and hat. Take off your coat and stay a while, said Levin, taking his hat. I haven't time— "'I only came in for a little second, replied Oblonsky. He unbuttoned his paletot, then took it off and stayed a whole hour to talk with Levin about the hunt and other subjects. "'Well, now, tell me, please, what you did while you were abroad. Where have you been?' he asked, after the peasant had gone. "'I went to Germany, to France, and England, but only to the manufacturing centres, and not to the capitals. I saw a great deal that was new. I am glad I went.' "'Yes, yes, I know your ideas about organized labor.' "'Oh, no, in Russia there can be no labor question. The question of the working man doesn't concern us. The only important question for Russia is the relation of the workman to the soil. The question exists there, but it is impossible to remedy it there. While here—' Oblonsky listened attentively. "'Yes, yes,' said he. "'It is possible that you are right, but I am glad that you are in better spirits.' You hunt the bear, you work, you are enthusiastic. Sherbatsky told me that he had found you blue and melancholy, talking of nothing but death. What of that? I am continually thinking of death, replied Levin. It's true that there is a time to die, and that all is vanity. But I will tell you honestly, I set great value on my thought and work. But think of this world, just take notice, this world of ours, a little mould making the smallest of the planets— and we imagine that our ideas, our works, are something grand. It's all grains of dust. All that is as old as the hills, brother. It is old. But you see, when this idea becomes clear to us, how miserable life seems. When we know that death will surely come, and that there will be nothing left of us, the most important things seem as insignificant as the turning over of this bearskin. And so in order to keep away thoughts of death, we hunt and work and try to divert ourselves. Stefan Arkadyevitch smiled and gave Levin one of his affectionate looks. Well, of course, here you come to me and you pounce on me because I seek pleasure in life. Be not so severe, O oh moralist. All the same, there is some good in life, replied Levin, becoming confused. Well, I don't know. I only know that we must soon die. Why soon? and you know that there is less charm in life when we think of death, but more restfulness. On the contrary, we must enjoy what there is of it, anyway. But, said Stefan Arkadyevitch, rising for the tenth time, I must go. Oh, no, stay a little longer, said Levin, holding him back. When shall we see each other again? I leave tomorrow. I am a queer fellow. This is what I came for. Don't fail to come and dine with us today. Your brother will be with us, and my brother-in-law, Karinin, will be there. Is he here? 
asked Levin, and he wanted to ask about Kitty. He had heard that she had been in Petersburg at the beginning of the winter, visiting her sister, the wife of a diplomatist, and he did not know whether she had returned or not, but he hesitated about asking. "'Whether she has come back or not, it's all the same. I will accept,' he thought. "'Will you come?' "'Well, of course I will.' "'At five o'clock, in ordinary dress.' And Stefan Arkadyevitch rose and went down to see the new Nachalnik. Instinct had not deceived him. This dreadful man proved to be a great fellow. Stefan Arkadyevitch lunched with him, and stayed so long to talk that it was nearly four o'clock when he got to Alexey Alexandrovitch's room. End of chapter 7part four chapter eight of anna karenina by leo tolstoy translated by nathan haskell doyle this LibriVox recording is in the public domain read by marianne spiegel alexey alexandrovitch after he returned from mass spent the morning in his room he had two things to accomplish on this day first to receive a deputation of the foreign population which was on its way to petersburg and happened just at that time to be at moscow and he wanted to instruct them as to what they should say, and then to write to his lawyer, as he had promised. The deputation, although it had been appointed at Alexey Alexandrovitch's invitation, was likely to cause great embarrassment, and even to be a source of peril, and Alexey Alexandrovitch was very glad to meet it in Moscow. The members of the deputation had not the slightest comprehension of their duties and obligations, they were perfectly persuaded that their work consisted in exposing their needs and explaining the actual state of affairs and asking governmental assistance and they really could not comprehend that some of their statements and demands gave color to the arguments of the hostile party and therefore spoiled the whole business alexey alexandrovitch had a long discussion with them made out a program from which they were not to deviate on any account in their dealings with the government and when they left him gave them letters of introduction to various persons in Petersburg, so that they might be properly treated. The Countess Lydia Ivanovna would be his principal auxiliary in this matter. She had a specialty for deputations, and knew better than anybody else how to manage them. When he had finished this business, Alexey Alexandrovitch wrote to his lawyer. Without the slightest misgiving, he gave him full power to do as he thought best, and sent three notes from Vronsky to Anna, which he had found in the portfolio. Since Alexey Alexandrovitch had left home with the intention of never returning to his family, and since his interview with the lawyer, when he had confided to one person at least his intentions, and especially since he had transferred this episode of his life to a documentary basis, he had become more and more settled in his convictions, and was now perfectly clear in his mind that what he wished could be accomplished. Just as he was sealing his letter, he heard Stefan Arkadyevitch's loud voice, asking the servant if his brother-in-law was at home, and insisting on being announced. "'It's all the same,' thought Alexey Alexandrovitch. "'Or rather, so much the better. I will explain to him my position in regard to his sister, and he will understand that it is impossible for me to dine at his house.' "'Come in,' he cried, gathering up his papers and pushing them into a writing-case. "'There now, you see you lied, and he is at home,' said Stefan Arkadyevitch to the servant, who would not let him in. Then, taking off his overcoat, as he walked along, he came to Alexey Alexandrovitch's room. "'I am delighted to find you,' he began gaily. "'I hope—' "'I cannot go,' 
said Alexey Alexandrovitch coldly, receiving his brother-in-law standing, and not asking him to sit down. Alexey Alexandrovitch resolved to adopt with his wife's brother the cool relations which seemed proper, since he had decided to get a divorce. But he did not reckon on that sea of kind-heartedness which was always overflowing its banks in Stefan Arkadyevitch's heart. Stefan Arkadyevitch opened wide his bright, clear eyes. "'Why can't you come? What do you mean?' he asked in French, with some hesitation. "'But you promised to come, and we all are counting on you.' I wish to tell you that I cannot come because our family relations must be broken. How is that? Why? said Oblonsky with a smile. Because I have commenced an action for getting a divorce from my wife, your sister. I must. But Alexey Alexandrovitch did not finish his sentence, for Stefan Arkadyevitch acted in a manner quite contrary to his expectations. Stefan Arkadyevitch sank into an armchair with a deep sigh. Alexey Alexandrovitch! It can't be possible, he cried, with pain expressed in his face. It is true. Pardon me, I cannot. I cannot believe it. Alexey Alexandrovitch sat down. He felt that his words had not produced the effect that he had looked for, and that whatever explanation he might make, his relations with Oblonsky would remain the same. Yes, it is a cruel necessity, but I am forced to demand the divorce, he replied. I will say only one thing to you, Alexey Alexandrovitch. I know that you are a man of principle, and I know Anna is one of the best of women. Excuse me if I cannot change my opinion of her. I cannot believe it. There must be some misunderstanding. Yes, if it were only a misunderstanding. Excuse me, I understand. But I beg of you, I beg of you, do not be in haste, interrupted Stefan Arkadyevitch. I have done nothing hastily, said Alexey Alexandrovitch coldly, but in such a case one cannot ask advice of anybody. I am decided. This is terrible, exclaimed Stefan Arkadyevitch with a deep sigh. I would do one thing, Alexey Alexandrovitch. I beseech you to do this, said he. Proceedings, as I understand, have not yet begun. Before you do anything, talk with my wife. She loves Anna like a sister. She loves you— and she is a woman of good sense. For God's sake, talk with her. Do me this favor, I beg of you. Alexey Alexandrovitch deliberated, and Stefan Arkadyevitch looked at him sympathetically, not breaking in on his silence. Will you come to her? Well, I don't know. That is the reason I did not call at your house. I suppose our relations ought to be broken off. Why should they be? I don't see that. Allow me to believe that apart from our family connection, you have toward me, to a certain extent at least, the same friendly sentiments which I have always felt toward you, and genuine regard, said Stefan Arkadyevitch, pressing his hand. Even if your worst surmises were justified, I should never take it on myself to criticize either side, and I see no reason why our relations should be changed. But now do this. Come and see my wife. Well, you and I look on this matter differently, said Alexey Alexandrovitch coldly. However, we will not discuss it. No, but why should you not come and dine with us, at least to-day? My wife expects you. Please come, and above all talk with her. She is, I assure you, a superior woman. For God's sake, come. I beg you on my knees. If you wish it so much, I will go, 
said Alexey Alexandrovitch, sighing, and to change the conversation he asked Stefan Arkadyevitch about a matter which interested them both, about the new Nachalnik, a man still young, who had suddenly received such an important appointment. Alexey Alexandrovitch had never liked Count Anitchkin, and had always differed with him about many questions, and now he could not help a feeling of envy natural to an official who had suffered defeat in his work and saw a younger man receiving advancement. "'Well, have you met him yet?' asked Alexey Alexandrovitch, with a venomous smile. "'Oh, yes. He was with us yesterday at the session. He seems like a man very well informed, and very active.' "'Active? But how does he employ his activity?' exclaimed Alexey Alexandrovitch. "'Is it in doing his work, or in destroying what others have done before him? The plague of our government is this scribbling bureaucracy, of which Anitchkin is a worthy representative.' Truly, I don't know how this criticism applies to him. I don't even know his tendencies. At any rate, he is a very good fellow, replied Stefan Arkadyevitch. I have just been with him. A very good fellow. We lunched together, and I taught him how to make a drink, you know, wine and oranges. He liked it very much. No, he is a fine young man. Stefan Arkadyevitch looked at his watch. Ah, Batoyshki, it is after four o'clock, and I have still to see Dolgovushin. It is decided, then, that you will dine with us, isn't it? Both my wife and myself will feel really hurt if you refuse to come. Alexey Alexandrovitch took leave of his brother-in-law very differently from the way in which he had greeted him. I have promised, and I will come, he replied in a melancholy tone. Believe me, I appreciate it, and I hope you will not regret it, said Stefan Arkadyevitch with a smile. And putting on his overcoat in the hall, he shook his fist at the servant's head, laughed, and went out. "'At five o'clock, remember, and in ordinary dress,' he called back once more, returning to the door. End of chapter 8 Part 4, Chapter 9 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel it was already six o'clock, and several guests had come when the master of the house entered, meeting Sergey Ivanovitch Kuznuyshev and Pestov at the door. These were the two chief representatives of Moscow intellect, as Oblonsky had called them, and were men of distinction both by wit and character. They valued each other, but on almost every topic were absolutely and hopelessly at odds, not because they belonged to opposing parties, but precisely because they were of the same camp. Their enemies confounded them in one. But in this camp they each had their shades of opinion. Now there is nothing more conducive to disagreement than dissent in small particulars. And so they not only never agreed in their opinions, but never failed to laugh at each other good-naturedly for their incorrigible mistakes. They reached the door, talking about the weather, just as Stefan Arkadyevitch overtook them. The old prince, Alexander Dmitrievich Sherbatsky, young Sherbatsky, Turovstuin, Kitty, and Karenin were already in the drawing-room. Stefan Arkadyevitch instantly perceived that matters in the drawing-room were going badly without him. Darya Alexandrovna, in her best grey silk gown, especially preoccupied with the children, who should have been eating their supper in the nursery by themselves, and anxious because her husband was late, did not succeed very well in entertaining her guests. 
All were sitting, like a pope's daughters making a call, as the old prince expressed it, evidently perplexed to know why they had come, and with difficulty finding a few words, so that the silence might not be absolute. The good-natured Turovstuin apparently felt out of his sphere, and the smile on his thick lips when he greeted Stefan Arkadyevitch spoke louder than words. "'Well, my dear fellow, you have got me here with clever people. We are making merry here. It is a regular chateau de fleurs. I am doing my part.' The old prince was sitting in silence, looking out of the corner of his bright eyes at Stefan Arkadyevitch, and Stefan Arkadyevitch perceived that he was trying to think up something worth saying to make an impression on this great statesman, who was being served up, like a sterlet, for the benefit of the guests. Kitty kept glancing at the door, trying with all her might not to be caught blushing when Konstantin Levin should appear. Young Sherbatsky, who had not been presented to Karenin, was trying to show that this did not cause him any constraint. Karenin himself was in a black coat and white necktie, according to the Petersburg custom, and Stefan Arkadyevitch, perceived by his face that he had come only to keep his promise, and by mingling in the society was performing a burdensome task. He, more than any one else, was the cause of the chill which froze all the guests into silence, until Stefan Arkadyevitch made his appearance. As soon as Stefan Arkadyevitch entered the drawing-room, he made his excuses, and explained that he had been detained by a certain prince, who was always his scapegoat for all his delays and absences. In a twinkling he presented his guests to one another, furnished Koznuyshev and Karinin a subject of conversation, the Russification of Poland, which they instantly grappled with, also enlisting Pestov in the discussion. Then, tapping Turatsuin on the shoulder, he whispered some jest into his ear, and sat him down between his wife and Prince Sherbatsky. Then he complimented Kitty on her beauty, and introduced young Sherbatsky to Karinin. In a twinkling he had so worked on all this mass of social dough that it began to seem like a salon, and the voices intermingled in gay confusion. Konstantin Levin was the only guest not on hand. But even this was a fortunate circumstance, because when Stefan Arkadyevitch went into the dining-room, he discovered to his dismay that the port and sherry had come from Desprey and not from Levy, and he seized the opportunity to send the coachman in all haste to Levy's, and then he returned to the drawing-room. Levin met him at the door of the drawing-room. "'I am not late, am I?' "'How could you be?' replied Stefan Arkadyevitch, taking him by the arm. "'Are there many people here? Who are they?' asked Levin, blushing involuntarily, and with his glove brushing away the snow from his hat. "'No one but relatives. Kitty is here.' Come, let me present you to Karinin. Stefan Arkadyevitch, notwithstanding his liberal views, knew that a presentation to Karinin could not fail to be flattering, and therefore he regaled his best friends with this pleasure. But at this moment Konstantin Levin was not in a condition to appreciate all the satisfaction which this acquaintance would afford. He had not seen Kitty since that well-remembered evening when he met Vronsky, except for that glimpse of her which he had as she sat in her carriage. In the depth of his heart he knew that he was to see her this evening, but in his attempt to preserve all the freedom of his thoughts, he had tried to persuade himself that he did not know it. And now, as he learned that she was there, he suddenly felt such timidity, and at the same time such terror, that he could hardly breathe, and he found it impossible to say what he wanted to say.' 
How will she seem? Just as she used to. Suppose Darya Alexandrovna was right. Why wasn't she right? He thought. Oh, present me to Karenin, I beg of you, he succeeded in stammering, as he entered the drawing-room with the courage of despair, and saw her. She was neither as she had been in old time, nor as she had been in the carriage. She was altogether different. She was nervous, timid, modest, and therefore even more charming than ever. She saw him the moment he entered the drawing-room. She had been watching for him, and she felt so glad, and so confused by reason of her gladness, that at one moment especially when, after greeting Dolly, he looked at her, she was afraid of bursting into tears. Levin and Dolly both noticed it. She blushed, and turned pale, and blushed again. She was so agitated that her lips trembled. Levin approached her, and bowed, and silently offered his hand. Had it not been for the slight trembling of her lips, and the moisture that suffused her eyes, and increased their brilliancy, her smile would have been almost serene, as she said, "'How long it is since we have met!' And at the same time, with a sort of desperate resolution, put her cold hand into his. "'You have not seen me, but I saw you one day,' said Levin, with a smile of radiant happiness. "'I saw you, when you were going from the railway station to your Goshovo. "'When was it?' asked she, in surprise. "'You were on your way to your Goshovo,' said Levin, feeling that the joy which flooded his soul was suffocating him. "'How?' he thought, could I have dared to associate anything but innocence with this fascinating creature? Yes, Darya Alexandrovna was right. Stefan Arkadyevitch came to conduct him to Karenin. Allow me to make you acquainted, said he, calling each by name. It is very pleasant to meet you again, said Alexey Alexandrovitch, coolly, as he shook Levin's hand. What? Do you already know each other? asked Oblonsky, with surprise. We travelled together for three hours, said Levin, smiling, but we parted as from a masked ball, very much mystified. At least, it was the case with me. Really? Will you pass into the dining-room? said Stepan Arkadyevitch, pointing toward the door. The gentleman walked into the dining-room, and went to a table laden with a zakuska, which was composed of six kinds of vodka, as many varieties of cheese with silver shovels, and without caviar, airing, preserves of different kinds, and platefuls of French bread sliced thin. The men stood around the table, and, while waiting for the dinner, the conversation between Sergei Ivanovitch, Kuznuyshev, Kurinin, and Pestov about the Russification of Poland began to languish. Sergei Ivanovitch, who had a faculty peculiar to himself for ending even the most absorbing and serious dispute, by an unexpected infusion of attic salt, and so putting the disputants into a better frame of mind, did this now. Alexey Alexandrovitch was trying to prove that the Russification of Poland could be accomplished only by means of the highest principles, and that these ought to be introduced by the Russian administration. Pestov maintained that one nation could only assimilate another by surpassing it in density of population. Koznuyshev, with certain restrictions, shared the opinions of both, and to close this serious conversation with a joke, he added, as they left the drawing-room, smiling, The most logical way, then, for us to assimilate foreigners, it seems to me, is to have as many children as possible. It is there where my brother and I are in fault, 
while you married gentlemen, and especially you, Stepan Arkadyevitch, are acting the part of good patriots. How many have you? he asked of the host, handing him a very diminutive glass. Everybody laughed, and Oblonsky most of all. Yes, that is certainly the best means, said he, taking a bite of cheese and pouring some special kind of vodka into the glass that Kaznuyshev offered him, but the jest really served to bring the discussion to a close. "'This cheese is not bad. What do you say?' remarked the host. "'Do you still practice gymnastics?' said Oblonsky, addressing Levin, and with his left hand feeling his friend's muscles. Levin smiled and doubled up his arm, and Stefan Arkadyevitch felt how under his fingers the biceps swelled up like a round cheese beneath the smooth cloth of his coat. "'What biceps! A Samson!' said he. "'I suppose it is necessary to be endowed with remarkable strength.' to hunt bears, isn't it?" said Alexey Alexandrovitch, smearing some cheese on a piece of bread as thin as a cobweb. His ideas about hunting were of the vaguest. Levin smiled. No, on the contrary, a child could kill a bear. And he drew back with a slight bow to make room for the ladies, who with the hostess were coming to the Zakuska table. I hear that you have just killed a bear, said Kitty, vainly trying to put her fork into a recalcitrant mushroom which kept flying about the plate, and as she threw back the lace in her sleeve there was a glimpse of a white arm. "'Are there really bears where you live?' she added, half turning her pretty face toward him and smiling. What she said had no especial importance, but what significance inexpressible in words there was for him, in the sound of her voice, in every motion of her lips, of her eyes, hands, when she said it. It implied an entreaty for forgiveness, an expression of faith in him, a sweet and timid caress, and a promise, and a hope, and love for him, and he could not help believing in it, and his heart was filled with happiness. Oh, no, we were hunting in the government at Tver, and on my way from there I met your brother-in-law, Steva's brother-in-law, in the train, said he, smiling. The meeting was very funny and he gave a lively and amusing description of how, after having been awake all night, he forced his way into Karinin's car in a sheepskin jacket. The conductor, contrary to the proverb, judging by first impressions, wanted to put me out, and there I was beginning to express myself in sublime style, and— Well, sir, you also, said he, addressing Karenin and not recollecting his name, you got your first impression from my Polushka book, and were for expelling me but afterward you took my part, for which I felt very grateful to you. "'Travellers' rights to their choice of place are generally too little considered,' said Alexey Alexandrovitch, wiping the ends of his fingers with his napkin. "'Oh, I noticed that you were dubious about me,' replied Levin, smiling good-naturedly. "'That was why I hastened to open a serious subject of conversation, to make you forget my sheepskin.' Kaznuyshev, who was talking with the mistress of the house, and at the same time listening with one ear to what his brother said, glanced at him. "'What is the matter with him to-night? What makes him look so triumphant?' he asked himself. He did not know Levin felt as if he had wings. Levin knew that she was listening to him. She was taking pleasure in what he said, and this was the only thing that interested him. He was alone with her, not only in this room, but in the whole world. He felt that he was on a dizzy height, and there far below him were all these excellent people, Oblonsky, Karinin, and the rest of humanity. Stefan Arkadyevitch seemed entirely to forget Levin and Kitty, 
in placing his guests at table until all but two of the seats were assigned. Then he put them side by side. "'Well, you can sit there,' he said to Levin. The dinner was as elegant as the appointments, for Stefan Arkadyevitch was a great connoisseur in such matters. The Marie-Louise soup was perfect. The little pierogi, or pasties, which melted in the mouth were irreproachable. And Matva, with two waiters in white cravats, skillfully and noiselessly served the roast and the wine. On the material side, the dinner was a success. It was not less so on the non-material side. The conversation was sometimes general, sometimes special, but it never lagged, and toward the end of the dinner it had grown so animated that when they left the table the men could not drop their interesting topics, and even Alexey Alexandrovitch was thawed out. End of chapter 9「Anna Karenina」by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. Pestov, who liked to discuss a question thoroughly, was not satisfied with what Kozhnuyshev had said. He felt that he had not been allowed to express his thoughts sufficiently. "'In speaking of the density of the population,' said he, after the soup, addressing Alexey Alexandrovitch, I didn't intend to make it the principle of an assimilation, but only a means. "'It seems to me that that amounts to the same thing,' replied Karenin, slowly and indolently. "'In my judgment, a people can have no influence over another people, unless it has the highest development, which—' "'That is precisely the question,' interrupted Pestov, who always spoke with so much ardour that he seemed to put his whole soul into defending his own opinions— how is one to decide on what is the highest development? Which stands on the highest plane of civilization? The English, the French, or the Germans? Which nation is to naturalize the others? We have seen the Rhine made French, but are the Germans inferior? No, there is some other law, he cried, in his bass voice. I believe that the balance will always turn in favor of true civilization, said Alexey Alexandrovitch slightly raising his brows. "'But what are the signs of this true civilization?' demanded Pestov. "'I suppose these signs are known,' replied Alexey Alexandrovitch. "'But are they really known?' suggested Sergey Ivanovitch, with a subtle smile. "'It is now admitted that our present civilization can be anything else than classical. But we have furious debates on this point, and it cannot be denied that each side brings forward strong proofs in its favor. "'Are you in favor of the classics, Sergey Ivanovitch?' said Oblonsky. "'Shall I give you some claret?' "'I am not expressing my personal opinions regarding either form of civilization,' replied Kosnuyshev, with a smile of condescension, such as he would have shown a child, as he reached out his glass. "'I only say that both sides have strong arguments,' continued he, addressing Alexey Alexandrovitch. "'My education was classical.' but in this controversy I personally cannot find any room to stand. I do not see any clear proofs that the classics must take precedence over the sciences. The natural sciences tend just as much to the pedagogical development of the human mind, replied Pestov. Take astronomy, take botany, and zoology, each with its system of general laws. It seems to me impossible to deny that the very process of learning the forms of languages has especially beneficial influence on mental development. 
Moreover, it must be admitted that the influence of the classic writers is eminently moral, while, unfortunately for us, the study of the natural sciences has been complicated with false and fatal doctrines, which are the bane of our time. Sergey Ivanovitch was going to reply, but Pestov interrupted him in his deep voice. He began heatedly to demonstrate the incorrectness of this statement. Koznuyshev calmly waited his chance to speak, evidently feeling that it would be a victorious rejoinder. But, said he, smiling shrewdly, and addressing Alexey Alexandrovitch, it cannot be denied that it is a difficult matter completely to balance all the advantages and disadvantages of the two systems of science, and that the question, which is preferable, could not be decided so quickly and definitely, if there were not on the side of the classical civilization, that advantage which you just called the moral, de sens le mont, the anti-nihilistic influence. Undoubtedly. If it were not for this advantage of the anti-nihilistic influence welded by classic education, we should rather hesitate. We should weigh the arguments of both sides, said Sergey Ivanovitch, with his shrewd smile. We should give scope to both tendencies. But now we know that in classical education lies the medical power of anti-nihilism, and we boldly administer it like a pill to our patients. But are we perfectly sure of the healing properties of these pills? he said in conclusion, pouring out his attic salt. Sergey Ivanovitch's pills made everyone laugh. Turovstuin more boisterously and heartily than the rest, for he had been on the lookout for something amusing to laugh at ever since the conversation began. Stefan Arkadyevitch had made no mistake in counting on Pestov. Pestov never allowed an intellectual conversation to flag for a moment. Koznuyshev had hardly finished with his jest when Pestov began again. "'One cannot even agree with this idea,' said he, "'that morality has this aim. Morality is evidently controlled by general considerations, and remains indifferent to the influences of the measures which may be taken. For example, the question of higher education for women should be regarded as dangerous, yet the government opens the public lectures and the universities to women.' and the conversation immediately leaped to the new theme of the education of women. Alexey Alexandrovitch expressed the thought that the education of women was too much confused with the question of the emancipation of women, and could be considered dangerous only from that point of view. "'I believe, on the contrary, that these two questions are intimately connected,' said Pestov. "'It is a vicious circle. Woman is deprived of rights because she is deprived of education.' and her lack of education comes from the absence of rights. Let us not forget that the bondage of women is so ancient, so interwoven with our customs, that we are very often incapable of understanding the legal abyss that separates her from us. You speak of rights, said Sergey Ivanovitch, as soon as he had a chance to put in a word. Is it a right to fulfill the functions of juror, of municipal councillor, of president of the tribunal, of public functionary? of member of parliament? Without a doubt. But if women can exceptionally fill these functions, then it seems to me we make a mistake in using the word rights. It would be fair to say duties. Everyone agrees that in fulfilling the function of a juror, of town councillor, of telegraph employer, we are fulfilling a duty. Let us say, then, that women are seeking for duties, and legitimately enough, in this case we may sympathize with their desire to take part in a man's work. 
That is perfectly fair, affirmed Alexey Alexandrovitch. The question, I suspect, consists in deciding whether they are capable of fulfilling these duties. And they will be, certainly, as soon as they have been generally educated, said Stefan Arkadyevitch. We see it. And the proverb, asked the old prince, whose little scornful eyes shone as he listened to this conversation. I may repeat it before my daughters. Long hair. That is the way we judge the negroes before their emancipation, said Pestov, with dissatisfaction. What astonishes me, said Sergey Ivanovitch, is that women are seeking new duties, when we see, unfortunately, that men generally shirk theirs. Duties are accompanied by rights, honor, influence, money. These are what women are after, said Pestov. Exactly as if I solicited the right to become a wet nurse, and found it hard to be refused, while women are paid for it, said the old prince. Turovstuin burst out laughing, and Sergey Ivanovitch regretted that he had not said that. Even Alexey Alexandrovitch smiled. Yes, but a man can't be a wet nurse, said Sergey Ivanovitch, but a woman. But what is a young girl without any family going to do? asked Stefan Arkadyevitch, who found reason to sympathize with Pestov, as he thought of his little ballet girl, Chibisovaya. If you look closely into the lives of these young girls, said Darya Alexandrovna, unexpectedly taking part in the conversation and showing some irritation, for it was evident that she suspected what sort of women Stepan Arkadyevitch meant, you will doubtless find that they have left a family or a sister, and that women's work was within their reach. But we are defending a principle, an ideal, answered Pestov in his ringing bass. Woman claims the right to be independent and educated. She suffers from her consciousness of being unable to accomplish this. And I suffer from not being admitted as nurse to the foundling asylum, repeated the old prince, to the great amusement of Tarotsuin, letting the large end of a piece of asparagus fall into his sauce. End of chapter 10「Chapter Eleven of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. All took part in the general conversation except Kitty and Levin. At first, when they were talking about the influence of one people over another, Levin recalled what he had to say on this subject, but his thoughts, which at one time had seemed to him very important, simply flashed through his mind like notions in a dream, and now had not the least interest for him. He even thought it strange that people could trouble themselves about such useless questions. Kitty, for her part, ought to have been interested in what was said about women's rights and education. How many times had she pondered over these subjects as she remembered her friend Berenka, whose dependence was so hard to bear? How many times had she thought what she herself would do, in case she should not marry. How often had she disputed with her sister on the subject? But now it did not interest her in the least. She and Levin had their own talk, and yet it was not a conversation so much as it was a mysterious affinity, which brought them nearer and nearer to each other, and filled them with a joyful timidity before the unknown they were about to enter. At first Kitty asked how he happened to see her in the summer, and Levin told her that he was returning from the hayfields by the highway after the mowing. It was very early in the morning. 
you had probably just waked. Your maman was asleep in her corner. It was a marvellous morning. I was walking along, saying to myself, A carriage with four horses. Whose can it be? They were four fine horses with bells, and quick as a flash you passed by. I saw you through the door. You were sitting like this, holding the ribbons of your bonnet in your hands, and you seemed awfully deep in thought. How I wished I could know, he added with a smile, what you were thinking about. Was it something very important? Wasn't my hair in disorder, thought Kitty, but seeing the enthusiastic smile that lighted up Levin's face, she felt that on the contrary the impression she had produced was good, and she replied, blushing and laughing merrily, Truly, I don't remember. How heartily Tarotsuin laughs, said Levin, looking at his moist eyes and his side shaking with laughter. Have you known him long? asked Kitty. Who doesn't know him? And I see that you think he is a bad man. Not bad, but he doesn't amount to much. That is unjust. I beg you not to think so any more, said Kitty. I, too, once had a very poor opinion of him, but he is a sweet-tempered and wonderfully good man. His heart is gold. How can you know what kind of heart he has? We are great friends. I know him very well. Last winter, a short time after— after you were at our house, she said, rather guiltily, but with a confiding smile. Dolly's children had the scarlatina, and one day Tarotsuin happened to call on my sister. Would you believe it? she said, lowering her voice. He was so sorry for her that he stayed to take care of the little invalids. For three weeks he played nurse to the children. I am telling Konstantin Dmitrik of Tarotsuin's kindness at the time of the scarlatina, said she, turning to her sister. Yes, it was remarkable. It was lovely, replied Dolly, looking with a grateful smile at Tarotsuin, who was conscious that they were talking about him. Levin also looked at him, and was surprised that he had never understood him till then. I plead guilty, and I will never again think ill of people, he said, gaily, speaking honestly, exactly as he thought at the time. End of chapter 11《パート4チャプター12of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle This LibriVox recording is in the public domain read by Marianne Spiegel The discussion about the emancipation of women led to talk about the inequality of rights in marriage and this was a ticklish subject to speak about in the presence of the ladies Pestov during the dinner several times touched on this question but Sergey Ivanovitch and Stefan Arkadyevitch warily diverted him from it. But as soon as dinner was over and the ladies had retired, Pestov addressed Alexey Alexandrovitch and attempted to explain the chief cause of this inequality. The inequality of rights between husband and wife in marriage depended, in his opinion, on the fact that the infidelity of a wife and that of a husband was unequally punished, both by law and by public opinion. Stefan Arkadyevitch hastened over to Alexey Alexandrovitch and offered him a cigar. "'No, I do not smoke,' replied Karenin, calmly, and, as if to prove that he was not afraid of this conversation, he turned toward Pestov with his icy smile. "'I imagine that such a view is based on the very nature of things,' said he, and he started to go to the drawing-room. But here Tarapsuin suddenly spoke up, addressing Alexey Alexandrovitch. 
"'Have you heard the story about Pryachnikov?' he asked. He was animated by the champagne, and had been impatiently waiting for a chance to break a silence which weighed heavily upon him. "'Vasya Pryachnikov?' he repeated, with a good-natured smile on his thick lips, red and moist, and he addressed Alexey Alexandrovitch as the most important guest. "'I was told this morning that he fought a duel at Tver with Kvitsky and killed him.' As it always seems as if a sore spot were peculiarly liable to be hit, so now Stefan Arkadyevitch thought the conversation was fated every moment to touch Alexey Alexandrovitch on the sore spot. He was on the point of going to his brother-in-law's assistance, but Alexey Alexandrovitch asked, with curiosity, "'Why did Pryachnikov fight a duel?' "'On account of his wife. He behaved bravely about it. He challenged the other man and killed him.' Ah, said Alexey Alexandrovitch, with unconcern, and, raising his eyebrows, he went to the drawing-room. Dolly met him in a little parlour leading into the drawing-room, and said, smiling timidly, How glad I am that you came. I want to talk with you. Let us sit down here. Alexey Alexandrovitch, preserving the air of indifference caused by his elevated eyebrows, sat down near her, pretending to smile. "'All the more willingly,' said he, "'as I wish to ask you to excuse me for leaving you as soon as possible. "'I have to go away to-morrow morning.' Darya Alexandrovna was firmly convinced of Anna's innocence, and she was conscious of growing pale and trembling with anger before this heartless, unfeeling man, who coolly proposed to ruin her innocent friend. "'Alexey Alexandrovitch,' she said with desperate firmness, looking him full in the face, I asked you about Anna, and you did not reply. How is she? I think that she is well, Darya Alexandrovna, replied Karenin, without looking at her. Pardon me, I have no right to insist on it, but I love Anna like a sister. Tell me, I beseech you, what has happened between you and her, and what do you accuse her of? Alexey Alexandrovitch frowned and bent his head, almost closing his eyes. Your husband must have told you, I think, the reasons which oblige me to break my relations with Anna Arkadyevna, said he, avoiding her eyes but casting a glance of annoyance at Sherbatsky, who was passing through the room. I do not believe it, I do not believe it, and I cannot believe it, murmured Dolly, pressing her thin hands together energetically. She rose quickly and, touching Alexey Alexandrovitch's arm, said, We shall be disturbed here. Let us go in there, please. Dolly's emotion communicated itself to Alexey Alexandrovitch. He arose and submissively followed her into the children's schoolroom. They seated themselves at a table covered with an oilcloth, hacked with penknives. I don't believe it. I don't believe it, repeated Dolly, trying to catch his eye, which avoided hers. One cannot deny facts, Darya Alexandrovna, said he, dwelling on the word facts. "'But what has she done?' insisted Darya Alexandrovna. "'Precisely what has she done?' "'She has failed to do her duty, and been false to her husband. "'That is what she has done,' said he. "'No, no, it is impossible. "'No, thank the Lord, you are mistaken,' cried Dolly, "'putting her hands to her temples and closing her eyes. "'Alexey Alexandrovitch smiled coldly with his lips only.' He wished to prove to Dolly, and to prove to himself, the firmness of his conviction, 
but this heated defence of his wife, though it did not shake him, irritated his wound. He spoke with more animation. It is difficult to make a mistake when a woman herself declares to her husband that eight years of married life and a son count for nothing, and that she wishes to begin life over again, he repeated angrily, dilating his nostrils. Anna and vice! I cannot associate the two ideas. I cannot believe it. Darya Alexandrovna, said he, angrily, now looking straight at Dolly's distressed face, and feeling his tongue involuntarily unloosed. I would give a great deal to be able still to have any doubts. When I was in doubt about it, it was hard for me, but easier than it is now. When I doubted, there was still hope. Now there is no hope, and I have doubted everything. I am so full of doubt that I detest my son, and sometimes I do not believe that he is my son. I am very unhappy. He had no need to say that. Darya Alexandrovna understood it as soon as she looked into his face. She pitied him, and her faith in her friend's innocence was shaken. Oh, it is terrible, terrible! But is it true that you are really decided about the divorce? I have decided to take this last measure. There was nothing else for me to do. No, don't do it. Don't do it, cried Dolly, with tears in her eyes. No, don't do it. The most dreadful thing about a misfortune of this kind is that one cannot bear his cross as in any other, a loss or a death. And here one must do something, said he, apparently divining Dolly's thought. One must escape from the humiliating position in which one is placed, on ne peut vivre à trois. I understand. I understand perfectly, replied Dolly, bowing her head. She was silent, thinking of herself, of her own domestic troubles. But suddenly, with an energetic movement, she raised her head, and with a supplicating gesture she folded her hands. But wait, she said. You are a Christian. Think of her. What will become of her if you abandon her? I have thought of it, Darya Alexandrovna. I have thought a great deal about it, said Alexey Alexandrovitch. His face was covered with red blotches, and his troubled eyes looked straight at her. Darya Alexandrovna pitied him now from the bottom of her heart. I did this very thing after she herself told me of her disgrace. I put everything on the old footing. I gave her the chance of reformation. I tried to save her. What did she do then? She paid no attention to the easiest of demands. Observance of propriety, he added, choking. One can save a man who does not want to perish, but if his whole nature is so corrupt, so rotten, that ruin itself seems salvation, what can be done? Everything except divorce, replied Darya Alexandrovna. What do you mean by everything? No, that is horrible. She will no longer be anyone's wife. She will be lost. What can I do? replied Karenin, raising his shoulders and his eyebrow, and the memory of his wife's last offence so angered him that he became as cool as at the beginning of the conversation. I am very grateful to you for your sympathy, but I must go, he added, rising. No, wait a moment. You must not give her up. Listen to me. I speak from experience. I, too, was married, and my husband deceived me. In my jealousy and indignation, I wished to abandon everything. 
but I considered the matter, and who saved me? Anna! Now I am living again, now my children are growing up, my husband has returned to his family, regrets his wrongdoing, is growing better, nobler. I live, I have forgiven him, and you ought to forgive her. Alexey Alexandrovitch listened, but Dolly's words had no effect on him. Again in his soul arose the anger of that day when he decided on a divorce. He shook himself and spoke in a loud, penetrating voice. I cannot, nor do I wish, to forgive her. It would be unjust. I have done what was next to impossible for this woman, and she has trampled everything into the mire, which seems to be her element. I am not a bad man, and I have never hated anybody before, but her I hate with all the strength of my soul, and I cannot forgive her, for I hate her too much for all the wrong she has done me. And tears of anger trembled in his voice. "'Love them that hate you,' murmured Dolly, almost ashamed. Alexey Alexandrovitch smiled scornfully. He was familiar with these words, but they did not apply to his case. "'We can love those who hate us, but to love those whom we hate is impossible.' I beg your pardon for having troubled you. Sufficient unto every man is his own burden. And having recovered his self-possession, Alexey Alexandrovitch calmly took leave of Dolly and went away. End of chapter 12this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. When the company arose from dinner, Levin wanted to follow Kitty into the drawing-room, but he was afraid, not that it would be disagreeable to her, but that it would be too obvious a wooing of her. So he remained with the men, and took part in the general conversation. And without looking at Kitty, he was conscious of her motions, of her glances, and of the place where she was in the drawing-room. Without the least effort, he immediately began to fulfill the promise that he had made to her to love all men, and to think nothing but good of them. The conversation turned on the commune in Russia, which Pestov considered as the beginning of what he called a new order of things. Levin agreed as little with him as he did with Sergey Ivanovitch, who it seemed to him recognized, and at the same time denied, the value of this institution. But he talked with them, trying only to reconcile them and tone down their excitability. He was not in the least interested in what he himself said, and was still less interested in what they said, but his one desire was to see all of them happy and contented. He now realized what one thing was important, and that one was at first yonder in the drawing-room, and afterward moved about and was now near the door. Without turning around he was conscious of a look and a smile fixed on him, and he could not help looking. She was standing there with Sherbatsky and looking at him. "'I thought you were going to the piano,' said he, approaching her. "'Music is what I have to do without in the country.' "'No, we merely came to find you, and I thank you for coming to us,' she replied, recompensing him with a smile. "'What pleasure can there be in discussing? Really, no one ever convinced another.' "'Yes, that is true,' said Levin. It generally happens that you get excited in a discussion simply from the fact that you can never tell exactly what your opponent is trying to show. 
Levin had many times noticed that in discussions among clever people, after an immense output of energy, an immense array of logical terms and subtleties, the disputants came at last to an acknowledgment that what they had been so interminably striving to prove to each other was a matter of common knowledge from the very beginning, but that they liked something different, and therefore were not willing to acknowledge what they liked, so as not to be controverted. He had often met with the experience that in the midst of a dispute you find what your opponent likes, and suddenly you find that you yourself like the same thing, and you immediately agree, and then all your arguments fall to the ground as useless. But sometimes he had had the opposite experience. You at last say what you like, and evolve your arguments, and if perchance you speak well and sincerely, suddenly your opponent assents, and ceases to uphold the other side. This is exactly what he meant. She wrinkled her brows, trying to comprehend, but as soon as he began to explain, her mind grasped his meaning. I understand. One must make sure why he is disputing, what he likes, if possible. She had fully grasped and expressed his badly phrased idea. Levin smiled with rapture. So striking was the transition from the complicated prolix discussion between Pestov and his brother to this clear, laconic, almost wordless communication of the most abstruse thoughts. Sherbatsky stepped away, and Kitty, going to a card-table, sat down, and taking a piece of chalk in her hand, began to draw circles on the green cloth. They took up the topic which was under discussion at dinner, as to the emancipation and occupation of women. Levin was inclined to agree with Darya Alexandrovna that a girl who was not going to marry would find feminine occupations in some family. He urged that not a single family can get along without some female help, that every family, however poor or rich, has and must have someone to look after the children. No, said Kitty, blushing, but looking at him frankly with her honest eyes. A girl may be so situated that she cannot without humiliation go into a family, but she herself— He understood what she hinted at. Oh, yes, he said, yes. Yes, yes, you are right. And he realized all that Pestov was trying to prove at dinner about the freedom of women, merely by the fact that he saw in Kitty's heart a maiden's dread of humiliation, and loving her, he experienced this dread and this humiliation, and immediately renounced his former arguments. A silence ensued. She went on making designs with the chalk on the table. Her eyes shone with a gentle gleam. Submitting to her mood, he felt in his being all the increasing tension of happiness. "'Oh, I have covered the table with my scrawls,' said she, laying down the chalk, with a movement as if she were going to rise. "'How could I stay alone without her?' thought Levin, terrified, and picking up the chalk. "'Wait,' said he, sitting down at the table. "'I've wanted for a long time to ask you something.' He looked straight into her affectionate, but nevertheless startled eyes. "'Please, what is it?' "'This is it,' he said, taking the chalk and writing the letters W.Y.S. I.I.I. W.I.I.T. O.A. These letters were the initials of the words, When you said it is impossible, was it impossible then or always? It was not at all likely that Kitty would be able to make out this complicated question. Levin looked at her, nevertheless, as if his life depended on whether she would guess these words or not. She looked at him gravely, 
then rested her forehead on her hand and tried to decipher it. Occasionally she would look up at him, asking him with her eyes, Is what I think right? I know what it is, she said, blushing. What is this word? he asked, pointing to the I of the word impossible. That letter stands for impossible. The word is not right, she replied. He quickly rubbed out what he had written, gave the chalk to her, and stood up. She wrote, T-I-C-N-A-D. Dolly, seeing her sister with the chalk in her hand, a timid and happy smile on her lips, raising her eyes to Levin, who was leaning over the table, beaming now at her, now at the cloth, felt consoled for the grief caused by her conversation with Alexey Alexandrovitch. Her face suddenly grew radiant. He had understood the reply. Then I could not answer differently. He looked at Kitty, timidly and inquiringly. Only then? Yes, replied the young girl's smile. B.N. But now? he asked. Read this. I will tell you what I wish, what I wish very much. And she quickly traced the initials. T.Y.M.F. A.F.W.T.P. This meant, that you might forgive and forget what took place. He seized the chalk in turn with his excited, trembling figures, and crushing it wrote down the initials of these words, I have nothing to forgive and forget. I have never ceased to love you. Kitty looked at him, and her smile died away. I understand, she murmured, he sat down and wrote a long phrase. She comprehended it, and without even asking it is thus and so, took the chalk and instantly replied. It was some time before he made out what she wrote, and had to keep looking into her eyes. His wits were dulled by his happiness. He could not supply the words which she intended, but in her lovely eyes, radiant with joy, he understood all that he needed to know, and he wrote three letters— but he had not finished writing them ere she read them under his hand, and herself finished the sentence and answered it, Yes. You are playing secretaire, are you? said the old prince, coming up to them. Well, if you are going to the theatre, it is time to start. Levin rose and accompanied Kitty to the door. This conversation decided everything. Kitty had acknowledged her love for him, and had given him permission to come the next morning to speak to her parents. End of chapter 13 Part 4, Chapter 14 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel After Kitty had gone and Levin was left alone, he felt such a restlessness and such an unendurable longing for the morning to come when he might see her again and settle his destiny forever, that he dreaded, as he dreaded death, the fourteen hours which he should have to endure without her. He felt it absolutely necessary to be with and to talk with some one so as not to remain alone, so as to cheat the time. Stefan Arkadyevitch, whom he would have liked to keep with him, was going, so he said, to a reception, but in reality to the ballet. Levin could only tell him that he was happy, and should never, never forget what he owed to him, Stefan Arkadyevitch's eyes and smile showed Levin that he suitably appreciated his feelings. "'What? Then you have nothing more to say about dying,' said Oblonsky, pressing his friend's hand affectionately. 
"'No,' replied the latter. Darya Alexandrovna, too, almost congratulated him when she bade him good-night. She said, "'How glad I am that you have made up with Kitty. We ought to prize old friends.' And her words displeased Levin. She could not comprehend how lofty and inaccessible to her all this was for him, and she should not have dared to refer to it. Levin took his departure, but, to avoid being alone, he joined his brother. "'Where are you going?' "'To a meeting.' "'Well, I'll go with you. May I?' "'Why not?' said Sergey Ivanovitch, smiling. "'What has happened to you today?' "'What has happened? Good fortune,' said Levin, letting down the carriage window. "'Have you any objection? I am suffocating. Good fortune has happened to me. Why have you never been married?' Sergey Ivanovitch smiled. "'I am delighted. She seems like a splendid g he began. "'No,' "'Don't say anything about it. Don't say anything about it,' cried Levin, clutching the collar of his shuba with both hands and covering his face with the fur. A splendid girl! What commonplace words! And how feebly they corresponded to his feelings! Sergey Ivanovitch laughed a gay laugh. This was a rare occurrence with him. "'I should think I might say that I am very glad of this.' "'Tomorrow. Tomorrow you may speak. But not another word now. Not another word.' "'Not another word. Be silent,' said Levin, and pulling his shuba still higher round his face, he added, "'I love you very much. But tell me, may I go to your meeting?' "'Of course you may.' "'What is the subject for your discussion to-night?' asked Levin, still smiling. They reached their destination. Levin heard the secretary stammer through the report, which evidently he did not understand, but he could see, from this secretary's face, that he was a good— amiable, sympathetic fellow. It was evident from the way he hesitated and became confused while reading. Then came the debates. They discussed about the disposal of certain sums of money and the laying of certain sewer-pipes. Sergey Ivanovitch attacked two members of the commission and made a long, triumphant speech against them. After which another member, reading from a paper, after some timid hesitation, replied briefly in a charming though bitter fashion, and then Sviatsky, he too was there, in his turn expressed his opinions nobly and eloquently. Levin listened and clearly saw that neither the money to be expended nor the sewer-pipes were of serious importance, and that they were not really quarrelling, but were all such pleasant, congenial people, and consequently all was serene among them. They interfered with no one, and all seemed happy. Levin noticed with surprise that they all seemed to him to-day transparent, that, from some trifling incidents which once would have entirely escaped his notice, he could read their souls, and see how good they all were. Especially did they seem to like him, Levin. This was shown by the way they talked with him, and even those who did not know him looked at him pleasantly and in a friendly manner. "'Well, how did you like it?' asked Sergey Ivanovitch. "'Very much. I never should have believed that it would be so interesting. It is splendid.' Sviatsky approached Levin and invited him to come and take a cup of tea at his house. Levin could not for the life of him comprehend or remember why he had been prejudiced against Sviatsky, or what he had seemed to him to lack. He was a clever and wonderfully good fellow. "'I should be delighted,' replied Levin, and he immediately inquired after Madame Sviatsky and her sister. By a strange association of ideas, as Sviatsky's sister-in-law suggested marriage, 
he concluded that nobody would be more interested than she and her sister to hear of his happiness, so he was very much pleased with the idea of going to see them. Sviatsky questioned him about his affairs, always refusing to admit that anything could be discovered which had not already been discovered in Europe, but now his theory did not arouse Levin's opposition. On the contrary, he felt that Sviatsky was right, and Levin admired the gentleness and delicacy with which he avoided the expression of his arguments. The ladies were especially charming. It seemed to Levin that they all knew, and that they shared his joy, but that they avoided speaking of it from discretion. He remained for three hours, talking on various subjects, and continually alluding to what filled his soul, without noticing that he was mortally tiring his friends, and that they were falling asleep. At last, Sviatsky, yawning, accompanied him to the vestibule, very much surprised at the strange state of mind in which his friend seemed to be. It was two o'clock. Levin reached his hotel, and was aghast at the thought of passing the next ten hours alone, a prey to his impatience. The watchman who was on duty in the corridor lighted his candles, and was about to withdraw when Levin stopped him. This fellow, who was called Yogur, and whom Levin had never before noticed, seemed like a good, intelligent man, and above all, kind-hearted. "'Tell me, Yogur, don't you find it hard to go without your sleep?' "'What can I do about it? It is our calling. We have an easier time in gentlemen's houses, but here we get larger wages.' It seemed that Yogur was the father of a family of four children, three boys and a girl trained as a seamstress, whom he hoped to marry to a harness-maker's clerk. Levin seized this opportunity to communicate his ideas about love in marriage to Yogur, remarking that people are always happy when there is love, because their happiness is in themselves. Yogur listened attentively, and evidently understood Levin's meaning, but he confirmed it by an unexpected reflection, that when he, Yogur, had served good masters, he had always been satisfied with them, and that he was contented with his master now, although he was a Frenchman. "'What a wonderfully good fellow,' thought Levin. "'Well, and did you love your wife, Yogur, when you married her?' "'Why shouldn't I have loved her?' replied Yogur. And Levin noticed Yogur also grew very enthusiastic, and was eager to confide to him his inmost thoughts. "'My life, too, has been extraordinary,' he began, his eyes shining, overcome by Levin's enthusiasm as one catches a yawning fit. "'From my childhood—' But the bell rang. Yogur departed, and Levin was left alone. He had eaten scarcely anything at dinner. He had refused to take any tea or supper at Sviatsky's, yet even now he could not think of eating. He had not slept the preceding night, yet he did not think of sleeping now. His room was cold, but it seemed so stifling that he could not breathe. He opened both casements and sat down on a table in front of one. Above the roofs, covered with snow, rose the carved cross of a church, and higher still were the triangular constellation of the charioteer and the bright yellow capella. He breathed in the cold air which filled his room, and looked now at the cross and now at the stars, rising as in a dream among the figures and memories called up by his imagination. Toward four o'clock in the morning he heard footsteps in the corridor. He opened his door and saw a gambler named Miaskin, whom he knew, returning from his club. He walked along, coughing, gloomy, and scowling. Poor unfortunate fellow, thought Levin, and his eyes filled with tears of pity and love for that man. He wanted to stop him, 
to speak to him and console him, but, remembering that he was undressed, he thought better of it, went back and sat down to bathe himself in the icy air, and to look at the silent, foreign-looking cross, so full of meaning to him, and at the brilliant yellow star poised above it. Toward seven o'clock the men polishing the floors began to make a noise. The bells rang for early morning service, and Levin began to feel that he was taking cold. He closed the window, made his toilet, and went out. End of chapter 14「Part four, Chapter fifteen of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by Marianne Spiegel. The streets were still deserted. Levin walked to the Shcherbatsky's house. The principal entrance was still closed, and every one was asleep. He returned to the hotel, went to his room, and asked for coffee. The day watchman, and not Yoger, brought it to him. Levin wished to enter into conversation with him, but someone rang for him, and he went out. Then Levin tried to take his coffee, and put a piece of kolach into his mouth, but his mouth did not know what to do with the bread. He eschewed it, and put on his overcoat, and went out to walk again. It was just ten o'clock when he reached the Shcherbatsky's steps for the second time. They were beginning to get up. The cook was going to market. He would have to wait at least two hours longer. Levin had passed the whole night and the morning completely oblivious of the material conditions of existence. He had neither eaten nor slept, had been exposed, with almost no clothing, to the cold for several hours, and he not only was fresh and hearty, but he was unconscious of his body. He moved without using his muscles, and felt capable of doing anything. He was persuaded that he could fly through the air or jump over the top of a house, if it were necessary. He roamed about the streets, to pass away the time, consulting his watch every moment or two, and looking about him. What he saw that day he never saw again. He was particularly struck by the children on their way to school, the dark blue pigeons flying from the roof to the sidewalk, the sacks, or little cakes powdered with flour, that an invisible hand was arranging in a window. These cakes, the pigeons, and the two little lads were celestial objects, all this happened at once. One of the little lads ran toward a pigeon, and looked at Levin, smiling. The pigeon flapped its wings, and flew off glittering in the sunlight through a cloud of fine snow, and the smell of hot bread came through the window where the sacks were displayed. All these things, taken as a whole, produced so lively an impression on Levin that he laughed aloud until the tears came. After going round by the Gazetnia and Kislova streets, he went back to the hotel, sat down, placed his watch before him, and waited till the hands pointed to the hour of noon. In the next room someone was talking about machines and hoaxes, and someone coughed a morning cough. The person did not know that the hour hand was approaching twelve. The hour pointed to twelve. Levin went to the steps of the hotel. The Izvoschiks evidently knew all about it. With happy faces they surrounded him, with eager emulation offering their services. Striving not to offend the others, and promising to take them some other time, he made his choice, and ordered the man to drive to the Shcherbatskys. The Izvoschik was charming, with his white shirt-collar above his caftan surrounding his strong red neck. He had a comfortable sleigh, more comfortable than ordinary sleighs. 
such a sleigh as Levin had never seen before, and the horse was good, and did his best to run, but did not stir from the spot. The Izvoschik knew the Sherbatsky house. He stopped before the door, flourishing his arms, and turned respectfully toward Levin, saying, Tpru, to his horse. The Sherbatsky's Swiss knew all about it, surely. That was plain from the look in his eyes and the way he said, Well, it is a long time since you have been here, Konstantin Dmitrich. Not only did he know what had happened, but he was full of delight and tried to conceal his joy. Levin felt a shade happier when he caught the old man's good-natured eyes. Are they up? Please come in. Leave that here, added the Swiss, as Levin was turning back to get his cap. That surely had some significance. To whom shall I announce you, sir? asked a lackey. This lackey, though young, new in the house, and with some pretension to elegance, was very obliging, very attentive, and he, too, seemed to understand the situation. To the princess. I mean the prince. No, the young princess, replied Levin. The first person whom he met was Mademoiselle Lignon. She was passing through the hall, radiant in her little curls and her shining face. He had hardly spoken to her when the rustling of a dress was heard at the door. Mademoiselle Lignon disappeared from before his eyes, and a joyous trepidation at the thought of the happiness so near took possession of him. Mademoiselle Lignon hastened away, and vanished through another door. She had hardly gone when swift light steps were heard pattering on the inlaid floor, and his happiness, his life, the better part of himself, that which he had yearned for so long, drew near. She did not walk, some invisible power seemed to bring her toward him. He saw only her bright, truthful eyes, filled with the same timid joy of love that filled his own heart. These eyes, shining nearer and nearer to him, almost blinded him with their light of love. She stood before him, almost touching him. Then she placed her two hands gently on his shoulders. She did all she could. She went to him. She gave herself to him, trembling and happy. He folded her in his arms, and pressed his lips to hers, expectant of his kiss. She, too, had not slept at all that night. She had been waiting for him all the morning. Her parents were perfectly agreed and happy in her happiness. She had been on watch for his coming. She wanted to be the first to tell him of their happiness. She was prepared to meet him alone, and she was full of joy at the thought, and yet she was shy and confused, and hardly knew what she was going to do. She had heard his steps and voice, and hid herself behind the door to wait till Mademoiselle Lignon had gone. Mademoiselle Lignon went. Then, without any delay, without questioning further, she came to him, and did as she did. "'Now, let us find Mamma,' said she, taking his hand. For a long time he could not utter a word, not so much because he was afraid of lessening the intensity of his joy by words, but because every time he tried to say anything he felt that instead of words— Tears of joy burst forth. His tears choked him. He took her hand and kissed it. "'Is it really true?' he said at last in a husky voice. "'I cannot believe that you love me.' She smiled at the way he used the second person singular, and at the timidity with which he looked at her. "'Yes,' she replied, slowly lingering on this word. "'I am so happy.' Without letting go his hand, she went with him into the drawing-room. As soon as the princess saw them, she began to breathe fast, and then burst into tears, 
and then she laughed, and with an energetic movement which Levin was not prepared for, she ran to him, seized his head, and kissed him, bedewing his face with her tears. "'So all is settled? I am delighted. Love her. I am so glad. For you. Kitty!' "'It didn't take you long to arrange matters,' said the old prince, trying to appear calm, but Levin saw his eyes were full with tears as he looked at him. "'It is something I have long been anxious for,' said the prince, taking Levin's hand and drawing him toward him. And even when this little giddy pate thought, "'Papa!' cried Kitty, putting her hand over his mouth. "'Well, I won't say anything,' said he. "'I am very, very, hap—' "'Ah, how stupid I am!' And he took Kitty in his arms, kissed her face, her hands, and then her face again, blessing her with the sign of the cross." and Levin was filled with a new feeling of affection for the old prince, when he saw how tenderly and fervently Kitty kissed his great, strong hand. End of chapter 15 Part 4, Chapter 16 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle This slipper-box recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel the princess was sitting in her easy-chair, silent and beaming. The prince was sitting beside her. Kitty was standing near her father, holding his hand. All of them were silent. The princess was the first to bring their thoughts and feelings back to the affairs of real life, and the transition gave each of them, for a moment, a strange and painful impression. "'When shall the wedding be? We must announce the marriage, and have them betrothed. But when shall the wedding be?' "'What do you think about it, Alexander?' "'There is the person most interested,' said the prince, pointing to Levin. "'When?' replied the latter, reddening. "'Tomorrow, if you wish my opinion. "'Today, the betrothal. "'Tomorrow, the wedding.' "'There, there. "'That'll do, mon cher. "'No nonsense.' "'Well, in a week, then. "'One would really suppose that you had lost your senses. "'But why not?' "'Mercy on us!' said the mother, smiling gaily at his impatience. And the trousseau— "'Is it possible that a trousseau and all the rest are indispensable?' thought Levin, with alarm. However, neither the trousseau, nor the betrothal, nor anything else can spoil my happiness. Nothing can do that. He looked at Kitty, and noticed that the idea of the trousseau did not offend her at all. "'It must be very necessary,' he said to himself. "'I admit that I know nothing about it, I have merely expressed my desire, said he, excusing himself. We will consider the matter. Now we will have the betrothal, and announce the marriage. That is what we will do. The princess stepped up to her husband, kissed him, and was about to move away again, but he held her, and kissed her again and again, like a young lover. The two old people seemed agitated, and ready to believe that it was not their daughter who was to be married, but themselves. When the prince and princess had gone out, Levin approached his fiancée and took her hand. He had regained his self-possession and could speak. He had many other things on his mind to tell her, but he did not say at all what he intended to say. I knew that it would be like this. At the bottom of my heart I was sure of it, without ever daring to hope. I believe that it was predestined. And I, replied Kitty, even when, she hesitated, then continued, looking at him resolutely out of her sincere eyes, even when I rejected my happiness. I never loved anybody but you. I was led away. 
I ought to tell you. I must ask you. Can you forget it? Perhaps it was best that it should be so. You, too, will have to pardon me, for I must confess to you. This was one of the things he had on his mind to tell her. He had decided to confess everything to her, from his earliest life. First, that he was not so pure as she, and then that he was not a believer. This was cruel, but he thought it his duty to make these confessions to her. No, not now. Later, said he. Very well, later. But be sure to tell me. I am not afraid of anything. I want to know all, everything. Now it is decided. Is it decided, he interrupted, that you take me just as I am? You do not take back your word. No, oh, no. Their conversation was interrupted by Mademoiselle Lignon, who, trying to look properly serious, came to congratulate her favorite pupil. She had not left the drawing-room before the servants came to offer their congratulations. Next came the relatives and friends, and this was the beginning of that absurdly happy period from which Levin did not emerge till the day after his marriage. Although he felt constrained and ill at ease all the time, yet the force of his happiness kept increasing. He felt all the time that much which he knew nothing about would be required of him, and he did everything that he was told to do, and all this served to increase his joy. He imagined that his engagement would not be in the least like others, that the ordinary conditions of an engagement would destroy his especial happiness. But it came about that he did exactly as everybody else did in such cases, and his happiness for this very reason kept increasing, and grew more and more peculiar, and did not change, and was in no respect like that of other men. Now, said Mademoiselle Lignon, we shall have all the candy we wish for. And Levin ran to buy candy. Well, very glad, said Sviatsky. I advise you to get your bouquets at Fomin's. Do you? said Levin, and he went to Fomin's. His brother told him he would have to borrow money because there would be many expenses for presents and other things. For presents? Really? And he started off on the run to buy jewelry at Fulda's. At the confectioner's, at Fomin's, at Fulda's, he found that every one expected him, and every one seemed glad and rejoiced in his happiness, as did every one with whom he had to do those days. It was an extraordinary thing that not only did they all love him, but, strange as it may seem, even those who before had seemed cold, unsympathetic, and indifferent approved of him in every way, treated his feelings with delicacy and gentleness, and shared his convictions that he was the happiest man in the world, because his bride was the pink of perfection. Kitty also had the same feeling. When the Countess Nordstone alluded to the more brilliant hopes that she had conceived for her friend, Kitty became angry, and declared so vehemently that no one in the world could be better than Levin, that the Countess had to confess it, and when Kitty was present she never met Levin without smiling enthusiastically. The confession which he had promised was a very trying incident of this period. He consulted the old prince, and, acting on his advice, Levin gave Kitty his journal in which were written out all the matters that troubled him. He had written this diary purposefully to show to the one whom he should marry. Two things tormented him, his sins against virtue and his unbelief. The confession of his unbelief passed almost unnoticed. She was religious, and had never doubted the truth of her religion, but her lover's superficial skepticism did not trouble her very much. She knew, through love, his whole soul, and in his soul found all that she wanted. 
it was of little importance to her that he termed the state of his soul incredulity but the second acknowledgment caused her to shed bitter tears levin had a great struggle with himself before he decided to let her read his diary he knew that between him and her there could be and should be no secrets and therefore he resolved that he must do it but he did not realize what an effect it would have on a young girl only when as he entered kitty's room one evening before going to the theatre and saw her lovely face bathed in tears and unhappy with the irreparable woe that he had caused did he perceive the abyss that separated his shameful past from her dove-like purity and he was horror-stricken at what he had done take back these terrible papers take them back she said pushing away the sheets lying on the table why did you give them to me however perhaps it was for the best she added seized with pity at the sight of levin's despairing face but it is terrible terrible he hung his head and had nothing to say you will not forgive me he murmured yes i have forgiven you but it is terrible however his happiness was so immense that this confession did not diminish it but only served to add a shade more to it she forgave him from that time he counted himself still more unworthy of her morally he bowed down still lower before her and treasured the happiness that he had gained still higher he understood the worth of it still better after this pardon end of chapter sixteen part four chapter seventeen of anna karenina by leo tolstoy translated by nathan haskell doyle this LibriVox recording is in the public domain read by marianne spiegel when he returned to his lonely room alexey alexandrovitch involuntarily recalled little by little the conversations that had taken place at the dinner and in the evening darya alexandrovna's words about pardon merely aroused his vexation whether he should apply the christian rule to his case or not was a question too difficult to be lightly decided besides he had already considered this question and decided it in the negative of all that had been said that day the remark of that good stupid Turatsuin, had made the liveliest impression on his mind he did bravely for he challenged the other man and killed him evidently all approved this conduct although out of politeness they had not said so openly however the matter is ended it is useless to think about it said alexey alexandrovitch to himself and giving no more thought to anything except the preparations for his departure and his tour of inspection he went to his room and asked the swiss who showed him the way if he had seen his valet the swiss said his valet had only just gone out alexey alexandrovitch ordered tea to be brought and sitting down at the table opened a railway guide and began to study the departure of trains for his journey two telegrams said his valet returning and coming into the room will your excellency please excuse me i have only just stepped out alexey alexandrovitch took the telegrams and opened them the first announced the nomination of stremov to the place for which he had been ambitious alexey alexandrovitch threw down the dispatch and with a flushed face began to walk back and forth through the room. Quo volt pedere dementat, said he, applying quo to all those who had taken part in this nomination. He was not disturbed by the fact that he himself had not been nominated, that he had evidently been outwitted. But it was incomprehensible to him, amazing, 
that they could not see that Stremov, that babbler, that speechifier, was the least fitted of all men for the place. Could they not understand that they were ruining themselves, that they were destroying their prestige by such a choice? Some more news of the same sort, he thought, with bitterness as he opened the second telegram. It was from his wife. Her name, Anna, in blue pencil, was the first thing that struck his eyes. I am dying. I beg you to come. I shall die easier if I have your forgiveness. He read these words with scorn and threw the paper on the floor. That there was some piece of trickery, some deception, in this, admitted of no doubt in his mind at first thought. There is no deceitfulness of which she is not capable. She must be on the eve of her confinement, and it is her sickness. But what can be her object? To legalize the child? To compromise me? To prevent the divorce? But what does it mean? I am dying. He reread the telegram, and suddenly realized its full meaning. If it is true, if the suffering, the approach of death, have caused her to repent sincerely, and if I should call this pretense, and refuse to go to her, that would not only be cruel, but foolish, and all would blame me. Pyotr, order a carriage. I am going to Petersburg, said he to the valet. Alexey Alexandrovitch decided to go to Petersburg, and to see his wife. If her illness was a pretense, he would say nothing, and go away again. On the other hand, if she were really ill unto death, and wanted to see him before she died, he would forgive her, and, if he reached her too late, he could at least pay his last respects to her. During the journey he gave no more thought of what he should do. Alexey Alexandrovitch, tired and dusty with his night in the coach, reached Petersburg in the midst of the early morning. He rode along the still-deserted Nevsky Prospect, looking straight before him, without thinking of what was awaiting him at home. He could not think about it, because as soon as he tried to imagine what might be, he could not drive away the suggestion that his wife's death would put a sudden end to all difficulties of his situation. The bakers, the closed shops, the night isvostchiks, the Dvorniks sweeping the sidewalks, all passed like a flash before his eyes. He noticed everything, in his endeavors to stifle the thought of what was before him, of what he dared not hope for, and yet hoped for. He reached his house, and his Vosček and a carriage with a coachman asleep were standing before the door. As he entered the vestibule, Alexey Alexandrovitch, as it were, snatched at a decision from the most hidden recess of his brain, and succeeded in mastering it. It was to this effect. If she has deceived me, I will be calm and go away again. But if she has told the truth, I will do what is proper." The Swiss opened the door, even before Alexey Alexandrovitch rang the bell. The Swiss Petrov, known as Kapitan Newitch, presented a strange appearance, dressed in an old coat and slippers, without any cravat. How is the Barowinia? In the night there was a change for the better. Alexey Alexandrovitch stopped short, and turned very pale. He now realized how deeply he had hoped for her death. And how is she? Karnai, the servant in morning dress, came quickly down the stairs. Very low, he said. There was a consultation yesterday, and the doctor is here now. Take my things, said Alexey Alexandrovitch, a little comforted to learn that there was still hope of death, and he went into the reception room. 
A uniform overcoat hung in the hall. Alexey Alexandrovitch noticed it, and asked, "'Who is here?' "'The doctor, the nurse, and Count Vronsky.' Alexey Alexandrovitch went through the inner rooms. There was no one in the drawing-room, but the sound of his steps brought the nurse, in a cap with lilac ribbons, out of the boudoir. She came to Alexey Alexandrovitch, and, taking him by the hand, with the familiarity that the approach of death permits, led him into the sleeping-room. "'Thank the Lord that you have come. She talks of nothing but you. Always of you,' she said. "'Bring some ice, quick,' said the imperative voice of the doctor from the chamber. Alexey Alexandrovitch went into her boudoir. On a little low chair by her table sat Vronsky weeping, his face covered with his hands. He started at the sound of the doctor's voice, uncovered his face, and saw Alexey Alexandrovitch. The sight of the husband disturbed him so much that he sat back in his chair, crouching his head down between his shoulders, as if he wanted to disappear out of sight. Then, making a great effort, he rose and said, "'She is dying. The doctors say that there is no hope. I am in your power. Only allow me to remain here. I will conform to your wishes in every other respect.' I, when he saw Vronsky in tears, Alexey Alexandrovitch felt the involuntary tenderness that the sufferings of others always caused him, and he turned away his head without replying, and went to the door. Anna's voice could be heard from the sleeping-room, lively, gay, and with clear intonations. Alexey Alexandrovitch went in and approached her bed. She was lying with her face turned toward him. Her cheeks were bright red, her eyes brilliant her little white hands coming out of the sleeves of her nightdress were playing with the corner of the coverlet. Not only did she seem fresh and well, but in the happiest frame of mind. She talked fast and loud, accenting her words with precision and nicety. Because Alexey, I am speaking of Alexey Alexandrovitch, strange, isn't it, and cruel, that both should be named Alexey? Alexey would not have refused me, I should have forgotten. He would have forgiven. Yes. Why does he not come? He is good. He himself does not know how good he is. Ah, Bozemois, what agony! Give me some water, quick. Ah, but that is not good for her, my little daughter. Well, then, very good. Give her to the nurse. I am willing that she will be even better. Now when he comes— she will be hateful in his sight. Take her away. Anna Arkadyevna, he has come. Here he is, said the nurse, trying to draw her attention to Alexey Alexandrovitch. Oh, what nonsense, continued Anna, without seeing her husband. There, give the little one to me. Give her to me. He hasn't come yet. You pretend that he will not forgive me because you do not know him. No one knows him. I alone. His eyes— one must know them. Sir Rosa's are very like them. That is why I can no longer look at them. Has Sir Rosa had his dinner? I know he will be forgotten. Oh, do not forget him. Let Sir Rosa be brought into the corner chamber, and let Marietta sleep near him. Suddenly she shrank back and was silent, and, with a look of terror, raised her arms above her head, as if to ward off a blow. She had recognized her husband. No, no! she said quickly. I am not afraid of him. I am afraid of dying. Alexey, come here. 
I'm in a hurry, because there is no time to be lost. I have only a few minutes to live. The fever will be upon me again, and I shall know nothing more. Now I am conscious, I understand everything, and I see everything. Alexey Alexandrovitch's wrinkled face expressed acute suffering. He took her hand, and he wanted to speak, but his lower lip trembled so that he could not utter a word, and his emotion hardly allowed him to glance at the dying woman. Every time that he turned his head toward her, he saw her eyes fixed on him with a humility and enthusiastic affection which he had never seen there before. "'Wait! You do not know! Wait! Wait!' She stopped to collect her thoughts. "'Yes,' she began again. "'Yes. Yes. Yes. This is what I want to say. Do not be astonished. I am always the same. But there is another I within me. Her I fear. It is she who loved him. Him, and hated you. And I could not forget what I had once been. That was not I. Now I am myself entirely, really myself, and not another.' I am dying. I know that I am dying. Ask him if I am not. I feel it now. There are those terrible weights on my hand and my feet and on my fingers. My fingers? They are enormous. But all that will soon be over. One thing only is indispensable to me. Forgive me. Forgive me wholly. I am a sinner. But Sarosa's nurse told me that there was a holy martyr. What was her name? who was worse than I. I will go to Rome. There is a desert there. I shall not trouble anybody there. I will only take Sarosa and my little daughter. No, you cannot forgive me. I know very well that it is impossible. Go away. Go away. You are too perfect. She held him with one of her burning hands and pushed him away with the other. Alexey Alexandrovitch's emotion had been all the time increasing, and now it reached such a degree that he could no longer control himself. He suddenly felt that what he had considered his spiritual discord was, on the contrary, a blessed state of the soul which imparted to him what seemed like a new and hitherto unknown happiness. He had not believed that the Christian law, which he had taken for a guide in life, ordered him to forgive and love his enemies. But now his soul was filled with joyous love and forgiveness to his enemies, he knelt beside the bed. He laid his forehead on her arm, the fever of which burned through the sleeve, and sobbed like a child. She bent toward him, placed her arm around her husband's bald head, and raised her eyes defiantly and proudly. There, I knew that it would be so. Now farewell. Farewell all. They are coming back again. Why don't they go away? There, take off all these furs from me. The doctor disengaged her arms, laid her back gently on her pillows, and drew the covering over her. Anna made no resistance, looking all the while straight before her, with shining eyes. Remember that I have only asked your pardon. I ask nothing more. Why doesn't he come? she said, suddenly looking toward the door, toward Vronsky. Come, come here and give me your hand. Vronsky came to the side of the bed, and— when he saw Anna, he hid his face in his hands again. "'Uncover your face. Look at him. He is a saint,' said she. "'Yes. Uncover your face. Look at him,' she repeated, 
in an irritated manner. Alexey Alexandrovitch, uncover his face. I want to see him. Alexey Alexandrovitch took Vronsky's hands and uncovered his face, disfigured by the expression of suffering and humiliation which it wore. Give him your hand. Forgive him. Alexey Alexandrovitch held out his hand to him, without trying to keep back the tears. Thank the Lord! Thank the Lord! said she. Now everything is right. I will stretch out my feet a little like that. That is better. How ugly those flowers are! They do not look like violets, she said, pointing to the hangings in her room. Bosemois! Bosemois! When will this be over? Give me some morphine, doctor, some morphine. Bosemois! Bosemois! and she tossed about on the bed. The doctor said that this was perpetual fever, and that there was not one chance in a hundred of her living. All that day there was fever, with alleviations of delirium and unconsciousness. Toward midnight she lay unconscious, and her heart had almost ceased to beat. The end was expected every moment. Vronsky went home, but he came back the next morning to learn how she was. Alexey Alexandrovitch came to meet him in the reception-room, and said to him, "'Stay. Perhaps she will ask for you.' Then he himself took him to his wife's boudoir. In the morning the restlessness, the rapidity of thought and speech, returned, but soon unconsciousness intervened again. The third day was much the same, and the doctors began to hope. On this day Alexey Alexandrovitch went to the boudoir where Vronsky was, closed the door, and sat down in front of him. "'Alexey Alexandrovitch,' said Vronsky, feeling that an explanation was at hand. "'I cannot speak. I cannot think. Have pity on me. Hard as it may be for you, believe me, it is still more terrible for me.' He was going to rise, but Alexey Alexandrovitch prevented him, and said, "'Pray, listen to me. It is unavoidable. I am forced to explain to you the feelings that guide me and will continue to guide me, that you may avoid making any mistake in regard to me. You know that I have decided on a divorce, and that I have taken preliminary steps to obtain one. I will not deny that at first I was undecided. I was in torment. I confess that the desire to avenge myself on you, and on her, pursued me. When I received the telegram, I came home. I felt the same desire. I will say more— I wished for her death, but— He was silent for a moment, considering whether he would wholly reveal his thoughts. But I have seen her, and I have forgiven her. The happiness I feel at being able to forgive clearly shows me my duty. I have absolutely forgiven her. I desire to offer the other cheek to the smiter. I wish to give my cloak to him who has robbed me of my coat. I only ask one thing of God— that he will not take away from me this joy of forgiving. Tears filled his eyes. Vronsky was amazed at the calm, luminous face. This is my position. You may drag me in the mire, and make me the laughing stock of creation, but I will not give up Anna for that, nor will I utter a word of reproach to you, continued Alexey Alexandrovitch. My duty seems clear and plain to me, I must remain with her. I shall remain with her. If she wishes to see you, I shall inform you of it. But now I think it will be better for you to go away. 
He rose. Sobs choked his voice. Vronsky rose, too, and, standing with bowed head and humble attitude, looked up at Karenin without a word to say. He was incapable of understanding Alexey Alexandrovitch's feelings, but he felt that this was something too high for him, something even unapproachable for a person who looked on the world as he did. End of chapter 17「Part four, Chapter eighteen of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by Marianne Spiegel. After this conversation with Alexey Alexandrovitch, Vronsky went out on the steps of the Karenin house and stopped, hardly knowing where he was and what he had to do. He felt humiliated, perplexed, and deprived of all means of washing away his shame. He felt thrown out of the path where till now he had walked proudly and easily. All the rules which had been the guides of his life, and which he had believed irreproachable, proved false and untrue. The deceived husband, whom he had considered a melancholy character, an accidental obstacle, at times absurd, happily for him had suddenly been raised by her to a height inspiring respect. And this husband on this height appeared not ugly not false, not ridiculous, but good, grand, and generous. Vronsky could not understand it. Their roles had suddenly been interchanged. He felt Karenin's grandeur and straightforwardness and his own baseness and falsity. He felt that this husband was magnanimous in his grief, while he himself seemed little and miserable in his deception. But this consciousness of inferiority, in comparison to a man whom he had unjustly scorned, constituted only a small part of his grief. He felt profoundly unhappy from the fact that his passion for Anna, which of late had, as it seemed to him, grown cold, was more violent than ever now that he knew he was to lose her. During her illness he had seen her as she was, had learned to know her very soul, and it seemed to him that he had never really loved her till now. He must lose her just as he had come to know her, and love her truly, lose her, and be left with the most humiliating recollections. More horrible than anything else was his ridiculous and odious position when Alexey Alexandrovitch had uncovered his face while he was hiding it in his hands. Standing motionless on the steps of the Karenin house, he seemed to be entirely unconscious of what he was doing. "'Shall I call Inesvoschek?' asked the Swiss. "'Yes, Inesvoschek.' When he reached home, after three sleepless nights, Vronsky, without undressing, threw himself down on a divan, folded his arms, and laid his head on them. His head was heavy. The strangest reminiscences, thoughts, and impressions succeeded one another in his mind with extraordinary rapidity and clearness. Now it was a drink which he poured out and gave the invalid from a spoon. Now he saw the nurse's white hands, then Alexey Alexandrovitch's singular attitude as he knelt on the floor by the bed. "'Sleep and forget,' he said to himself, with the calm resolution of a man in good health, who knows that when he feels tired he can sleep if he will. His ideas became confused. He felt himself falling into the abyss of forgetfulness. The billows of the sea of unconscious life were already beginning to swell over his head, when suddenly something like a violent electric shock passed through him. 
he started up so abruptly that his body bounded upon the springs of the divan, and he found himself in his terror on his knees. His eyes were as wide open as if he had not slept at all. The heaviness of his head, and the lassitude which he felt in all his members, but a moment before, had suddenly vanished. "'You may drag me in the mire,' These words of Alexey Alexandrovitch rang in his ears. He saw him standing before him. He saw, too, Anna's feverish face and her brilliant eyes looking tenderly, not at him, but at Alexey Alexandrovitch. He saw the stupid, ridiculous figure he must have presented when Alexey Alexandrovitch drew away his hands from his face. Again he threw himself back on the divan and closed his eyes. Sleep and forget he repeated to himself. But though his eyes were closed, he saw clearer than ever Anna's face, just as it looked on that memorable evening of the races. It's impossible, and will not be. How can she efface this from her memory? I cannot live without this. But how can we be reconciled? How can we be reconciled? He unconsciously pronounced these words aloud and their mechanical repetition for some minutes prevented the recollections and forms which besieged his brain from returning. But the repetition of the words did not long deceive his imagination. Again, one after the other, with extraordinary swiftness, the sweet moments of the past and his recent humiliation began to arise in his mind. "'Uncover his face,' said Anna's voice. He took away his hands, and realized how humiliated and ridiculous he must have appeared. He still lay there trying to sleep, though he felt that there was not the slightest hope of it, and repeating in a whisper some formula with the design of driving away the new and distressing hallucinations that kept arising. He listened to his own voice repeating with a strange persistence, You did not know how to appreciate her. You did not know how to value her. You did not know how to appreciate her. You did not know how to value her. What is going to happen to me? Am I going mad? he asked himself. Perhaps so. Why do people go mad? And why do they commit suicide? And, while he was answering himself, he opened his eyes, and was surprised to see at his head a cushion embroidered by Varya, his brother's wife. He lightly touched the tassel of the cushion, and tried to fix the thought of Varya in his mind, and how she looked the last time he saw her. But any idea foreign to what tormented him was still more intolerable. No, I must sleep. He placed the cushion under his head, but it required an effort to keep his eyes closed. He leaped to his feet and sat down. All is over with me. What else can I do? And his imagination vividly pictured what life without Anna would be. Ambition, Serpikovskoy, the world, the court. No more these had power to stop him. All this once had some meaning, but now it had none. He rose from the divan, took off his coat, loosened his necktie, and bared his shaggy chest that he might breathe more freely, and began to stride up and down the room. This makes people insane, he repeated. This causes suicide to avoid disgrace, he added slowly. He went to the door and closed it. Then, with a look of determination, and with his teeth set, he went to the table, took out his revolver, examined it, 
turned the loaded chamber round, and stopped to consider. He stood motionless for two minutes, with the revolver in his hand, his head bowed in the attitude of intense thought. Of course, he said to himself, as if a logical sequence of clear and exact ideas led him to this unquestionable decision, but in reality this to him conclusive, of course, was only the consequence of a continued circle of recollections and impressions which he had gone over for the tenth time in the last hour. There were the same recollections of happiness lost for ever, the conception of the meaninglessness of all that was now before him in life, the same consciousness of his shame. There was the same repetition of these impressions and thoughts. Of course, he repeated, when for the third time his mind directed itself to the same enchanted circle of thoughts and recollections, and holding the revolver to the left side of his breast, with an unflinching grip he pulled the trigger. He did not hear the sound of the report, but the violent blow that he received in the chest knocked him over. He tried to save himself by catching hold of the table. He dropped his revolver, staggered, and fell on the floor, looking about him with astonishment, he could not recognize his room, the twisted legs of the table, the waste-paper basket, the tiger skin on the floor. All seemed strange to him. The quick steps of his servant running to the drawing-room obliged him to get control of himself. He collected his thoughts with an effort, and seeing that he was on the floor, and that blood was on his hands and on the tiger skin, he realized what he had done. "'What stupidity! I missed my aim,' he muttered feeling round for his pistol. It was quite near him, but he could not find it. As he continued to grope for it, he lost his balance and fell again, bathed in his own blood. His valet, an elegant person with side-whiskers, who complained freely to his friends about his delicate nerves, was so frightened at the sight of his master lying on the floor that he let him lie bleeding and ran for help. In an hour, Varya, Vronsky's sister-in-law, arrived and with the assistance of the three doctors whom she sent for in all directions, and who all came at once, she succeeded in putting the wounded man to bed, and established herself as his nurse. End of chapter 18read by Marianne Spiegel. Alexey Alexandrovitch, when he prepared to see his wife again, had not foreseen the contingency of her repentance being genuine, and then of her recovery after she had obtained his pardon. This mistake appeared to him in all its seriousness two months after his return from Moscow. But the mistake which he had made proceeded not only from the fact that he had not foreseen this eventuality, but also from the fact that not until the day when he looked on his dying wife had he understood his own heart. Beside the bed of his dying wife, he had given way, for the first time in his life, to that feeling of sympathy for the griefs of others, against which he had always fought as one fights against a dangerous weakness. His pity for her, and remorse at having wished for her death, but above all the joy of forgiving, had made him suddenly feel, not only a complete alleviation of his sufferings, but also a spiritual calmness such as he had never before experienced. He suddenly felt that the very thing that had been a source of anguish was now the source of his spiritual joy. 
what had seemed insoluble when he was filled with hatred and anger, became clear and simple now that he loved and forgave. He had pardoned his wife, and he pitied her because of her suffering and repentance. He had forgiven Bronsky, and he pitied him too, especially after he heard of his desperate act. He also pitied his son more than before, because he felt that he had neglected him. But what he felt for the newborn child was more than pity, it was almost tenderness. At first, solely from a feeling of pity, he looked after this little newborn girl, who was not his daughter, and who was so neglected during her mother's illness that she would have surely died if he had not taken her in charge, and before he was aware of it, he became attached to her. He would go several times a day into the nursery, and sit there, so that the wet nurse and the bonne, though they were a little intimidated at first, gradually became accustomed to his presence. He stayed sometimes for half an hour, silently gazing at the saffron-red, wrinkled, downy face of the sleeping child, following her motions as she scowled and puckered her lips, watching her rub her eyes with the back of her little hands, curling up her round fingers. And at these moments especially, Alexey Alexandrovitch felt calm and at peace with himself, seeing nothing abnormal in his situation, nothing that he felt the need of changing. However, as time went on, he felt more and more that he would not be permitted to remain in this situation, however natural it seemed to him, and that nobody would allow it. He felt that, besides the holy and spiritual force that guided his soul, there was another force, brutal, equally if not more powerful, which directed his life, and that this power would not give him the peace that he desired. He felt that everyone was looking at him, and questioning his attitude, not understanding it, and expecting him to do something. Especially he felt the unnaturalness and constraint of his relations with his wife. When the tenderness which she felt at the expectation of death had passed away, Alexey Alexandrovitch began to notice how Anna feared him, how she dreaded his presence, and did not dare to look him in the face. She seemed to be always pursued by a thought she dared not express, and as if she had a presentiment that their present relations could not last, she, too, expected some move from her husband. Toward the end of February, the little girl, who had been named Anna for her mother, was taken ill. In the morning Alexey Alexandrovitch had seen her in the nursery, and, after he had left orders about calling the doctor, he went to the ministry meeting. Having transacted his business, he returned at four o'clock. As he entered the anteroom, he noticed an Adonis of a lackey, in livery and bearskin cloak, holding a white rotunda, or mantle, lined with American fox. "'Who is here?' he asked. "'The Princess Yelizaveta Fyodorovna Tverskaya,' replied the lackey, with a smile, as it seemed to Alexey Alexandrovitch. All through this painful period Alexey Alexandrovitch noticed that his society friends, especially the women, showed a very marked interest in him and in his wife. He noticed in them all that veiled look of amusement which he saw in the lawyer's eyes, and which he now saw in the lackey's. They all seemed delighted, as if they were going to a wedding. When people met him and inquired after his health, they did so with the same half-concealed hilarity. The presence of the Princess Tverskaya was not agreeable to Alexey Alexandrovitch, both because he had never liked her, and because she had called up unpleasant memories, and so he went directly to the nursery. In the first room, 
Sir Rosa, leaning on a table, with his feet in a chair, was drawing and chattering merrily. The English governess, who had replaced the Frenchwoman soon after Anna's illness, was sitting near the child, with her fancy-work in her hand. She rose, made a curtsy, and put Sir Rosa's feet down. Alexey Alexandrovitch smoothed his son's hair, answered the governess's questions about his wife's health, and asked what the doctor said about baby. The doctor said that it was nothing serious. He ordered baths, sir. She is in pain, nevertheless, said Alexey Alexandrovitch, hearing the child cry in the next room. I believe, sir, that the wet nurse does not suit her, replied the Englishwoman decidedly. What makes you think so? he asked, as he paused on his way. It was the same at the Countess Falls, sir. They dosed the child with medicine, while it was merely suffering from hunger, sir. The wet nurse has not enough milk for it. Alexey Alexandrovitch considered for a few moments, and then went into the adjoining room. The child was crying as she lay in her nurse's arms, with her head thrown back, refusing the full breast that was offered her, and screaming, without yielding, to the bandishments of the two women bending over her. "'Isn't she any better?' asked Alexey Alexandrovitch. "'She is very worrisome,' replied the old nurse, in a whisper. "'Miss Edwards says that perhaps the nurse hasn't enough milk for her,' said he. "'I think so, too, Alexey Alexandrovitch.' "'Why haven't you said so?' "'Whom should I say it to? Anna Arkadyevna is still ill,' replied the old nurse, discontentedly. The old nurse had been in the family a long time, and these simple words struck Alexey Alexandrovitch as an allusion to his position. The child cried harder and harder, losing its breath and becoming hoarse. The old nurse threw up her hands in despair, took the little one from the wet nurse, and rocked her as she walked back and forth. "'You must ask the doctor to examine the wet nurse,' said Alexey Alexandrovitch. The wet nurse, a healthy-looking woman of fine appearance, sprucely dressed, who was afraid of losing her position, muttered to herself, as she fastened her dress over her great bosom, smiling scornfully at the doubt of her not having enough nourishment. In her smile Alexey Alexandrovitch also detected ridicule of his position. "'Poor little thing,' said the old nurse, trying to hush the child and still walking back and forth. Alexey Alexandrovitch sat down in a chair, sad and crestfallen, and followed the old nurse with his eyes as she walked up and down with the child. When at last she had pacified it and placed it in the cradle, and, having arranged the little pillow, had moved away, Alexey Alexandrovitch rose and went up to it on tiptoe. For a moment he was silent and looked with melancholy face at the little thing, but suddenly a smile which moved his hair and the skin on his forehead spread over his face, and he quietly left the room. He went into the dining-room, rang the bell, and ordered the servant that answered it to send for the doctor again. He was displeased because his wife seemed to take so little interest in this charming baby, and in this state of annoyance he wished neither to go to her room nor to meet the Princess Betsy. But his wife might wonder why he did not come as usual. He crushed down his feelings and went to her chamber. As he walked along toward the door on a thick carpet, he unintentionally overheard a conversation which he would not have cared to hear. If he were to go away, I should understand your refusal, and his also. But your husband ought to be above that, said Betsy. It is not for my husband's sake, but my own, that I don't wish it. Say nothing more about it, replied Anna's agitated voice. Yes, but you can't help wanting to say good-bye to the man who shot himself on your account. 
that is the very reason I do not wish to see him again. Alexey Alexandrovitch, with an expression of fear and guilt, stopped, and started to go away without being heard. But, considering that this would lack dignity, he turned round again, and, coughing, went toward the chamber. The voices were hushed, and he went into the room. Anna, in a grey collet, with her dark hair cut short on her round head, was sitting in a reclining chair. All her animation disappeared, as usual, at the sight of her husband, and she bowed her head and glanced uneasily at Betsy. Betsy, dressed in the latest fashion, with a little hat perched on the top of her head, like a cap over a lamp, in a dove-colored gown, trimmed with bright-colored bands on the waist on one side, and on the skirt on the other, was sitting beside Anna. She sat up as straight as possible, and welcomed Alexey Alexandrovitch with a nod and a sarcastic smile. "'Ah,' she began, affecting surprise, "'I'm delighted to meet you at home. You never show yourself anywhere, and I haven't seen you since Anna was taken ill. I learned of your anxiety from others. Indeed, you are a wonderful husband,' she said, with a significant and flattering look, as much as to say that she conferred on him the order of magnanimity on account of his behavior toward his wife. Alexey Alexandrovitch bowed coldly, and, kissing his wife's hand, inquired how she was. "'Better, I think,' she replied, avoiding his look. "'However, your face has a feverish look,' he said, emphasizing the word feverish. "'We have talked too much,' said Betsy. "'It was selfish on my part, and I am going now.' She rose, but Anna, suddenly flushing, seized her quickly by the arm. "'No, stay.' I beg of you. I must tell you. No, you. She addressed Alexey Alexandrovitch, while the color increased on her neck and brow. I cannot, nor do I wish, to hide anything from you, she said. Alexey Alexandrovitch cracked his knuckles and bent his head. Betsy has told me that Count Vronsky wishes to come to our house and say good-bye before he goes to Tashkend. She did not look at her husband, and she evidently was in haste to get through with it, however hard it might be. I have said that I could not receive him. You said, my dear, that it would depend on Alexey Alexandrovitch, corrected Betsy. Yes. No, I cannot see him, and it would not do any— She stopped suddenly, and looked inquiringly at her husband's face. He was not looking at her. In short, I do not wish— Alexey Alexandrovitch approached and wanted to take her hand. Anna's first impulse was to withdraw her hand from her husband's clammy hand with its big, swollen veins, but she evidently controlled herself and pressed it. "'I am very grateful to you for your confidence, but,' he began, then stopped, awkward and annoyed, feeling that what he could easily and clearly decide when by himself he could not settle in the presence of the Princess Sverskaya who was the incarnation of that brutal force which he had to take as the guide of his life in the eyes of the world, and obliged him to renounce his feelings of love and forgiveness. He stopped as he looked at the Princess Sverskaya. "'Well, good-bye, my treasure,' said Betsy, rising. She kissed Anna and went out. Karenin accompanied her. "'Alexey Alexandrovitch, I know that you are an extraordinarily magnanimous man,' said Betsy, stopping in the midst of the boudoir to press his hand again with unusual fervor. I am a stranger, and I love her so much 
and esteem you so highly, that I take the liberty of giving you a bit of advice. Let him come. Alexey Vronsky is the personification of honor, and he is going to Tashkend. I thank you for your sympathy and your advice, princess, but the question whether my wife can or cannot receive anybody is for her to decide. He spoke these words with dignity, raising his eyebrows as usual, but he felt at once that, whatever his words had been, dignity was inconsistent with the situation. The sarcastic and wicked smile with which Betsy greeted his remark proved it beyond a doubt. End of chapter 19Part Four, Chapter Twenty of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. Alexey Alexandrovitch took leave of Betsy in the hall and returned to his wife. She was lying down, but hearing her husband's steps, she sat up quickly in her former position and looked at him in a frightened way. He saw that she had been crying. I am very grateful to you for your confidence in me, said he, gently, repeating in Russian the remark that he had just made in French before Betsy. When he spoke to her in Russian, and used the familiar second person singular, twi, this twi irritated Anna in spite of herself. I am very grateful for your decision, for I agree with you that, since Count Vronsky is going away, there is no necessity of his coming here. Besides— Yes— but as I have said that, why repeat it? interrupted Anna, with an annoyance which she could not control. No necessity, she thought, for a man to say farewell to a woman he loves, for whom he has wished to commit suicide, and who cannot live without him. She pressed her lips together, and fixed her flashing eyes on her husband's hands with their swollen veins, as he stood slowly rubbing them together. We will not say anything more about that, she added more calmly. I have given you perfect freedom to decide this question, and I am happy to see, Alexey Alexandrovitch began again, that my desires are in conformity with yours, finished Anna, quickly, exasperated to hear him speak so slowly, when she knew beforehand what he was going to say. Yes, he affirmed, and the Princess Sverskaya shows very poor taste to meddle in family affairs, she of all others. I don't believe what they say about her, said Anna. I only know that she loves me sincerely. Alexey Alexandrovitch sighed and was silent. Anna played nervously with the tassels of her calotte, and looked at him now and then with that feeling of physical repulsion which she reproached herself for, without being able to overcome. All that she wished for at this moment was to be rid of his distasteful presence. Ah, I have just sent for the doctor said Alexey Alexandrovitch. What for? I am well. For the baby. The little one cries so much. They think that the nurse hasn't enough nourishment for her. Why didn't you let me nurse her, when I urged it so? All the same. Alexey Alexandrovitch understood what she meant by all the same. She is a baby, and they will kill her. She rang and sent for the little one. I wanted to nurse her, and you wouldn't let me, and now you blame me. I do not blame you for anything. Yes, you too blame me. Bosse moi. Why didn't I die? She began to sob. Forgive me. I am nervous and unjust, she said, trying to control herself. 
but go away no this state of things cannot go on said alexey alexandrovitch to himself as he left his wife's room never before had he been so convinced of the impossibility of prolonging such a situation before the world never had his wife's dislike of him and the strength of that mysterious brutal force which had taken possession of his life to rule it contrary to the needs of his soul and to make him change his relations to his wife appeared to him with such clearness he saw clearly that the world and his wife exacted something from him which he could not fully understand he felt that it aroused within him feelings of hatred which disturbed his peace and destroyed the worth of his victory over himself anna in his opinion ought to have nothing more to do with vronsky but if everybody considered this impossible he was ready to tolerate their meeting on condition that the children should not be disgraced or his own life disturbed wretched as this was it was nevertheless better than a rupture whereby she would be placed in a shameful and hopeless position and he himself would be deprived of all that he loved but he felt his powerlessness in this struggle and knew beforehand that all were against him and that he would be prevented from doing what seemed to him wise and good and that he would be obliged to do what was bad but necessary to be done end of chapter twenty part four chapter twenty one of anna karenina by leo tolstoy translated by nathan haskell doyle this librivox recording is in the public domain read by marianne spiegel betsy had not left the hall when stepan arkadyevitch appeared on the threshold he had come from elisiev's where they had just received fresh oysters ah princess you hear what a fortunate meeting i have just been at your house the meeting is but for a moment I am going, replied Betsy, smiling as she buttoned her gloves. Wait just a moment, princess. Allow me to kiss your little hand before you put on your glove. Nothing pleases me so much, in returning to ancient ways, as the custom of kissing a lady's hand. He kissed Betsy's hand. When shall we meet again? You don't deserve to see me, replied Betsy, laughing. Oh, yes, I do, for I have become a very serious man. I regulate not only my own family affairs, but also other people's," said he, with a significant expression in his face. "'Ah, I am delighted to hear it,' replied Betsy, instantly knowing that he referred to Anna. Going back into the hall, they stood in a corner. "'He is killing her,' she whispered with conviction. "'It is impossible, impossible.' "'I am very glad that you think so,' replied Stepan Arkadyevitch, shaking his head with sympathetic commiseration that is why i am in petersburg the whole town are talking about it said she this situation is intolerable she is fading away before our very eyes he doesn't understand that she is one of those women whose feelings cannot be treated lightly one of two things either he ought to take her away and act decidedly or else be divorced but this is killing her yes yes exactly said oblonsky with a sigh I have come for that. That is to say, not entirely for that. I have just been made Chamberlain, so I had to show my gratitude, but the main thing was to arrange this matter. Well, may the Lord help you, said Betsy. Stepan Arkadyevitch accompanied the Princess Betsy to the door, 
once more kissed her wrist just above her glove where the pulse beats and after paying her such an impudent compliment that she did not know whether to laugh or take offence he left her to go to his sister he found her in tears in spite of the exuberance of his lively spirits stepan arkadyevitch fell instantly and with perfect genuineness into the tone of sympathetic and poetical tenderness which suited his sister's frame of mind he asked how she felt and how she had passed the day wretchedly very wretchedly night and day the future the past all wretched she replied it seems to me you have yielded to the blues you must take courage look life in the face it is hard i know but i have heard that some women love men for their very vices began anna suddenly but i hate him for his virtue i cannot live with him understand me the sight of him has a physical effect on me which drives me out of my mind i cannot cannot live with him what shall i do i have been unhappy before and i thought it impossible to be more so but this horrible state of things surpasses all that i could have imagined can you believe that though i know how good and perfect he is and how unworthy of him i am still i hate him i hate him for his magnanimity there's absolutely nothing left for me but to she was going to add die but stepan arkadyevitch did not let her finish you are ill and nervous believe me you exaggerate everything there is really nothing so very terrible and stepan arkadyevitch smiled no one except stepan arkadyevitch meeting such despair would have ventured to smile for it would have seemed rude but his smile was so full of kindness and an almost effeminate sweetness that instead of irritating it was calming and soothing his gentle soothing words and smile acted like oil of sweet almonds anna at once felt the effect no stiva said she i am lost lost worse than lost and yet i am not yet lost i cannot still say that all is over on the contrary i feel that all is not yet over i seem like a cord too tightly stretched which must break but the end has not yet come and it will be terrible no no the cord can be carefully unstrung there is no difficulty without some way out of it i have thought it over and thought it over and i see only one again he saw by her look of dismay that the one way that she meant was death and again he did not allow her to finish no listen to me you cannot judge of your position so well as i let me tell you frankly my opinion he smiled again cautiously with his almond oily smile i will begin at the beginning you married a man twenty years older than yourself and you married without love or at least without knowing what love was it was a mistake as well admit it a terrible mistake said anna but i repeat it it was an accomplished fact you then had let us say the misfortune to fall in love not with your husband that was a misfortune but that too was an accomplished fact your husband knew it and forgave it after each sentence he stopped as if to give her time to reply but she said nothing now 
The question is, can you continue to live with your husband? Do you wish it? Does he wish it? I know nothing about it. Nothing. But you yourself have just said that you could no longer endure him. No, I did not say so. I deny it. I know nothing. I understand nothing. Yes, but allow me. You cannot understand it. I feel that I am precipitated, head first, into an abyss, and I may not save myself. I cannot. You will see that we can prevent you from falling and from being crushed. I understand you. I feel that you are not able to express your feelings, your desires. I desire nothing, nothing, only to end all this. He sees this and knows it. Do you suppose that he doesn't feel the strain as much as you do? You suffer. He suffers. And what way of escape is there from all this torture? Then, when a divorce would settle everything. Stefan Arkadyevitch with difficulty expressed his principal idea, and looked to Anna to see what effect it would have. She said nothing, and shook her head disapprovingly. But by the expression of her face, which suddenly lighted up with something of her former beauty, he saw that, if she did not wish this, it was because the thought of its being realized was too enticing. I am awfully sorry for you. How happy I should be if I could arrange it for you, said Stefan Arkadyevitch. Don't say a word. If God will only permit me to express all that I feel, I am going to find Alexey Alexandrovitch. Anna looked at him out of her brilliant, thoughtful eyes, and did not reply. End of chapter 21「four chapter twenty two of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle this LibriVox recording is in the public domain read by Marianne Spiegel Stefan Arkadyevitch went into his brother-in-law's cabinet with the solemn face which he tried to assume when he sat in his official chair at a council meeting Alexey Alexandrovitch with his arms behind his back was walking up and down the room considering the same thing that Stefan Arkadyevitch had been discussing with his wife. "'Shall I disturb you?' asked Stefan Arkadyevitch, suddenly feeling an unwanted embarrassment. In order to conceal his embarrassment, he took a new cigar-case out of his pocket, smelt of the leather, and took out a cigarette. "'No. Do you wish to see me?' asked Alexey Alexandrovitch, reluctantly. "'Yes. I would like—' "'I must—' "'Yes, I must have a talk with you,' said Stefan Arkadyevitch, surprised at his confusion. This feeling was so strange and unexpected to him that he did not recognize in it the voice of conscience, warning him that what he hoped to do was evil. He recovered himself with an effort, and conquered the weakness which took possession of him. "'I hope that you believe in my love for my sister, and my sincere sympathy and regard for you,' said he." and his face grew red. Alexey Alexandrovitch listened, and made no reply, but his face struck Stefan Arkadyevitch by its expression of humility and pain. I intended, I came on purpose, to speak with you about my sister, and the situation in which you and she are placed, said Stefan Arkadyevitch, still struggling with his unusual embarrassment. Alexey Alexandrovitch smiled sadly. 
looked at his brother-in-law, and, without replying, went to the table, took up a half-written letter, and handed it to him. I can think of nothing else. This is what I began to write, thinking that I could express myself better in a letter, for my presence irritates her, said he, giving him the letter. Stefan Arkadyevitch took the paper, and looked with perplexity and surprise at his brother-in-law's dull eyes, which were fixed on him. Then he read, I see that my presence is disagreeable to you. Painful as it is for me to recognize it, I know that it is so, and it cannot be otherwise. I do not blame you. God knows that, during your illness, I resolved to forget the past, and to begin a new life. I am not sorry, I never shall be sorry, for what I did then. I desired only one thing, your salvation, the salvation of your soul, and now I see that I have not succeeded. Tell me yourself what will give you true peace and happiness, and I will submit to whatever you may deem just and right. Stefan Arkadyevitch gave the letter back to his brother-in-law, and with the same perplexity he simply stared at his brother-in-law, not knowing what to say. This silence was so uncomfortable to both that Stefan Arkadyevitch's lips trembled convulsively, while he did not take his eyes from Karenin's face. "'That is what I wanted to say to her,' said Alexey Alexandrovitch, turning away. "'Yes, yes,' said Stefan Arkadyevitch, but he could not go on, the tears so choked his utterance. "'Yes, yes, I understand you.' I should like to know what she wishes, said he at last. I am afraid that she herself does not realize her own situation. She is not a judge of the matter, said Stefan Arkadyevitch, trying to recover himself. She is crushed, literally crushed, by your magnanimity. If she should read your letter, she would be unable to say a word, and could only bow her head still lower. Yes, but what is to be done in such a case? How can it be settled? How can I know what she wishes? If you will allow me to express my opinion, I think it is for you to state clearly what measure you believe necessary to put an end to this situation at once. Consequently, you think it ought to be ended at once? interrupted Alexey Alexandrovitch. But how? he added, passing the back of his hand over his eyes in an unusual way. I see no possible way out of it. There is a way out of every difficulty, however serious it may be, said Stefan Arkadyevitch, rising and growing more animated. There was a time when you wished for divorce. If you are convinced now that you can never be happy together again, happiness may be understood in different ways. Let us grant that I agree to everything, that I have no wishes in the matter. What escape is there from our situation? If you wish for my advice, said Stefan Arkadyevitch, with the same smooth, almond-oily, affectionate smile with which he had spoken to his sister, and this smile was so persuasive that Alexey Alexandrovitch, giving himself up to the weakness which overpowered him, was involuntarily inclined to believe what his brother-in-law said. She will never say what her wishes are, but there is one thing possible, one thing she may hope for, continued Stefan Arkadyevitch, and that is to break the bonds which are only the cause of cruel recollections. In my opinion, it is indispensable to put your relations on an entirely new footing, and that can only be done by both of you resuming your freedom. 
Divorce, interrupted Alexey Alexandrovitch with disgust. Yes, I suppose that divorce. Yes, divorce, repeated Stefan Arkadyevitch, blushing. Taking everything into consideration, that is the most sensible course when two married people find themselves in such a situation as yours. What is to be done when a husband and wife find that living together is impossible? This can always be brought about. Alexey Alexandrovitch drew a deep sigh, and covered his eyes. There is only one consideration, whether one of the parties wishes to marry again. If not, it is very simple, continued Stefan Arkadyevitch, recovering more and more from his feeling of constraint. Alexey Alexandrovitch, with his face distorted by emotion, muttered something to himself, but made no reply. What seemed so simple to Oblonsky, he had turned over a thousand thousand times in his mind, and, instead of finding it very easy, found it utterly impossible. Now that the conditions for divorce were known to him, it seemed to him impossible, because the sense of his personal dignity, as well as his respect for religion, prevented him from confessing to a fictitious accusation of adultery, and still less permitting his wife, whom he had once pardoned and still loved, to be disgraced and put to shame. Divorce seemed impossible from still other and even more important reasons. What would become of their son? To leave him with his mother was impossible. The divorced mother would have her own illegitimate family, in which the child's position and training would be wretched. Should he keep the child for himself? But he knew that would be an act of vengeance, and vengeance he did not want. But, above all, what made divorce impossible in his eyes was the thought that, in consenting to it, he himself would contribute to Anna's destruction. The words spoken by Darya Alexandrovna, when he was in Moscow, remained graven in his heart, that in getting a divorce he was thinking only of himself, and forgetting that it would be her irretrievable ruin. These words, now that he had forgiven her, and had become attached to the children, had a very significant meaning to him. To consent to a divorce, to give Anna her liberty, was to cut away the last tie that bound himself to life, to her children whom he loved, and was to take away her last help in the way of salvation, and to push her over the precipice. If she became a divorced woman, he knew very well that she would be united to Vronsky, and such a bond would be criminal and illegal, because a woman, according to the laws of the church, cannot enter into a second marriage during the lifetime of her husband. And who knows, but, after a year or two, either he might abandon her, or she might form a new liaison, thought Alexey Alexandrovitch, and I, having allowed an illegal divorce, should be responsible for her fall. He had gone over all this a hundred times, and was convinced that divorce was not by any means so simple as his brother-in-law would make it out, that it was wholly impossible. He did not admit a word of what Stefan Arkadyevitch said. He had a thousand arguments to refute such reasoning, and, notwithstanding this, he listened, feeling that his words were the manifestation of that irresistible force which ruled his life, and to which he would finally submit. The only question is, how, on what conditions, you will consent to a divorce, for she will never dare to ask anything of you, and will give herself up entirely to your magnanimity. My God, my God, why has this come upon me? thought Alexey Alexandrovitch, 
and as he remembered the condition of divorce in which the husband assumed the blame, from shame he buried his face in his hands, as Vronsky had done. "'You are distressed. I understand it. But if you will consider—' "'Whosoever smiteth thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man would take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also,' thought Alexey Alexandrovitch. "'Yes, yes,' he cried in his piping voice. "'I will take all the shame upon myself. I will even give up my son. But will it not be better to leave all that? However, do as you please.' and turning away from his brother-in-law, that he might not see his face, he sat down near the window. He was grieved, he was ashamed, but with this grief and shame he felt a sense of happiness and emotion in the consciousness of his own humility. Stefan Arkadyevitch was touched. Alexey Alexandrovitch, be assured that she will appreciate your generosity, said he, after a pause. It is, without doubt, the will of God, he added, but he felt, as soon as the words were out of his mouth, what a foolish remark it was, and he could hardly restrain a smile at his own foolishness. Alexey Alexandrovitch would have replied, but tears prevented him. The trial comes by fate, and it must be accepted. I accept it as an accomplished fact, and I will try to help you and her, said Stefan Arkadyevitch. When Stefan Arkadyevitch left his brother-in-law's cabinet, he was touched, but this fact did not prevent him from being delighted at having settled this matter. For he was certain that Alexey Alexandrovitch would not go back on his word. His satisfaction suggested a conundrum which he could ask his wife and intimate friends. What is the difference between me and a field-marshal? The field-marshal makes divorces, and nobody is the better for it, while I make divorces, and three people are better off. Or, rather, what resemblance is there between me and a field-marshal? Where? But by and by, I'll improve on it, he said to himself with a smile. End of chapter 22Vronsky's wound was dangerous, although it did not reach the heart. He hung for several days between life and death. When for the first time he was in a condition to talk, only Varya, his brother's wife, was in his room. Varya, he said, looking at her gravely, I shot myself accidentally. Now please never speak to me about this, but tell everyone so, otherwise it will seem too stupid. Varya bent over him without replying, examining his face with a happy smile. His eyes were bright, but no longer feverish, but their expression was stern. "'Well, thank the Lord,' she replied. "'Are you suffering?' "'A little on this side,' said he, pointing to his chest. "'Let me change the dressing, then.' Squinting, he silently watched her change it, and when she had finished, he said, "'I'm not delirious now. See to it.' I beg of you, that nobody says that I shot myself intentionally. Nobody says so. I hope, however, that after this you will not shoot yourself accidentally again, she said with a questioning smile. Probably I shall not, but it would have been better. And he smiled gloomily. 
In spite of these words, and this smile which so alarmed Varya, when the inflammation had subsided, and he began to recover, he felt that he was free from a part of his misfortunes. By his action he had washed away, as it were, his shame and humiliation, which had weighed on him before. Henceforth he could think calmly of Alexey Alexandrovitch. He recognized all his magnanimity without being crushed by it. Besides, he was able to be himself again, to look people in the face, and could live, governing himself by his customary habits. What he could not tear from his heart, in spite of all his efforts, was the regret, bordering on despair, at having lost Anna forever, since he was firmly resolved, now that he had redeemed his fault toward Karenin, not to place himself between the repentant wife and her husband but he could not put out of his heart the regret at the loss of her love. He could not blot out the memory of happy moments which he had spent with her, and not have appreciated till now, and which pursued him continually in all their fascination. Serpakovskoy thought of sending him to Tashkend, and Vronsky accepted the proposition without the least hesitation. But the nearer the time for his leaving came, the more cruel seemed the sacrifice to what he considered his duty. His wound was healed, and he had already gone out and was engaged in making preparations for his journey to Tashkend. To see her once more, and then bury myself and die, he thought, and while paying his farewell visit to Betsy, he expressed his wish to her. The latter sent at once an ambassador to Anna, but brought back her refusal. So much the better, thought Vronsky, on receiving her reply. This is a weakness which would have cost me my last strength. The next morning Betsy herself went to Vronsky, announcing that she had, through Oblonsky, positive information that Alexey Alexandrovitch consented to a divorce, and that consequently Vronsky might see Anna. Without finding out when he could see her, or where her husband would be, Vronsky immediately went to the Karenins. He flew up the steps, not seeing anything or any one, and with hasty steps, almost running, entered Anna's room, and— Without even noticing whether there might not be someone else in the room, he took her in his arms and began covering her hands, her face, her neck with kisses. Anna was prepared to see him again, and had made up her mind what to say to him, but she had no time to speak. Vronsky's passion overpowered her. She wanted to calm him, to calm herself, but it was already too late. Her lips trembled so that for a long time she was unable to speak a word. Yes. "'You have conquered me. I'm yours,' she succeeded in saying at last, pressing his hand to her breast. "'So it had to be,' said he. "'As long as we live, it must be so. I know it now.' "'It is true,' she replied, growing paler and paler as she put her arms around Vronsky's neck. "'However, there is something terrible in this after what has happened.' "'All that will be forgotten. Forgotten.' We shall be so happy. If there were any need of our love increasing, it would increase, because there is something terrible about it, said he, raising his head and displaying his strong teeth as he smiled. She could only reply with a smile, not with words, with her eyes which expressed such love for him. I do not know you with your short hair. You are lovely so, just like a little boy. But how pale you are. Yes, I am still very weak, she replied, smiling, and her lips began to tremble again. 
We will go to Italy. You will grow strong there, said he. Is it possible that we could live like husband and wife, alone, by ourselves, said she, looking him in the eye? I am only surprised at one thing, that it has not always been so. Steva says that he will consent to everything, but I will not accept his generosity, said she, looking thoughtfully above Vronsky's head. I do not wish for a divorce. It is all the same to me now. I only wonder what he will decide with regard to Zerosa. Vronsky could not understand how, in these first moments of their reunion, she could think of her son and of divorce. How could it be all the same to her? Don't speak of that. Don't think of it, said he, turning Anna's hand over and over in his, to draw her attention to him. But she did not look at him. Oh, why did I not die? It would have been so much better, said she, and though she did not sob, the tears rolled down her pale cheeks. She tried, nevertheless, to smile, that she might not give him pain. Once Vronsky would have thought it impossible and disgraceful to give up the flattering and perilous mission to Tashkend, but now he refused it without any hesitation. Then, noticing that his refusal was misinterpreted by the authorities, he gave in his resignation. A month later Alexey Alexandrovitch was left alone with his son, and Anna went abroad with Vronsky, without a divorce, and resolutely refusing to accept one. End of chapter 23 and End of part 4 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle